Hello, my name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro-tron Let's Go podcast, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Here, once more, we dive into the void. We dive into the discourse. Uh, we have, of course, been eagerly awaiting our opportunity to present our top 10 films of 2022. And we've had to push e- it back. We really have. And what better and more relevant a release date for our podcast episode talking about the best movies, our favourite movies of 2022, than the 1st of April, 2023. <laughs> right on time. Oscars. I think this is this is definitely the latest that we've ever gone, um, but it's also because uh, there were a couple of movies that ended up coming to Australia quite late. The Stragglers. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, but, yes, oh, before we do all that, we'll go over the rules before we actually go into the lists. Uh, but before we do that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. We all went to the cinemas individually mm-hmm. uh, to see the same thing, evidently on the same night. Yep. That was unintentional, but we all saw Shazam! Fury of the Gods, uh, which is a superhero movie directed by David F. Sandberg. It's based on the DC comic series. And it is set a few years after the first movie, where Billy Batson, played by Asher Angel, is, you know, now living it up as this sort of superhero. He can change into the superhero Shazam, uh, played by Zachary Levi, if he says the words Shazam. And his whole foster family is in on it now. They're all Shazams as well. And uh, that is starting to push up against normal young people stuff. But uh, that's the least of their troubles, because the daughters of Atlas turn up, led by Hespera, played by Helen Mirren, and they're sort of looking to get their magic back. Their magic is the magic that is basically giving the kids that their power through. Vague backstory that I don't think is very well explained in this movie, and I'm still not sure I understand. But, uh, yes, what about you guys? What what did you think of Shazam! Fury of the Gods? I'll tell you a story. So, uh, we went out to go see it Thursday night. Uh, there were Plenty of seats available, as is predicted, and it it wasn't empty in our cinema, but it wasn't as full as I would like on a Thursday night. Thursday night is our popular night at our local cinema. Well, it's worth noting also that Thursday night in Australia is the night, is day one of the new movie. Like, the movie releases come out yep. on the Thursdays. Um, and, yeah, it wasn't opening night, but it was the no. Thursday after, but, yeah. Still, not great. Uh, but the movie itself, I quite liked it. Um, I read a lot of reviews saying that it liked the heart of the first. I don't know what they're talking about. It definitely still had a lot of that heart. And the real strength is the fact that these are kids. The, uh, they are learning to not only deal with becoming superheroes, they're also dealing with what it's like in their family. Billy's about to turn 18 in a couple of months, and he ages out of the foster system then. Uh, maybe played by uh, Carolyn Curry, I think? Grace Curry. Grace Curry. Grace Carolyn Curry, full name. Uh, has already this gone through that. Write so, it down. so they've started... St- things have gotten tougher for the family. Um, I like all that stuff, the interactions between the kids, the way that they've sort of disgraced the Rock of Eternity, turning it into their lair full of candy and shit, is pretty amusing, I would have to say. I like what Helen Mirren is bringing to the character of Hespera. 
I've never seen her throw a grown man around a room before, but I got to see that here, and that's a lot of fun. Um, they do underserve Lucy Liu, though, but yeah, just in general, I had a good time. I like seeing all the Greek mythology stuff. I like how mo the vast majority of gods, like, you know, besides minor deities, are dead, as established in Wonder Woman. Mm. They're gone, and they're, you know, all of that. And that's that's pretty cool, and it connects back in a really fun way because of that, even though it's a very loose continuity at this point. Uh, but yeah, I had a good time. I would have liked to see more Asher Angel in it as Billy, though. I think they really underserved him as a performer. But Jack Dylan Grazer as Freddy is a real standout. That kid's got future. Yeah, I, I enjoyed this movie fine. I liked the villains here, the daughters of... Atlas. Atlas. The daughters of Atlas. Uh, Rachel Zegler and Helen Mirren are the main ones that we make have a lot of focus on. Lucy Liu does good with what she's given. And we get a few really cool horror-esque scenes mm. with uh, her and Helen Mirren. But I think I've found figured out the reason why I don't really sort of latch on to Zachary Levi in this. He his version of Shazam is acting way younger than Billy is being played by Asher Angel. There seems to just be a disconnect between the performances there that I can't get past. To be uh, fair, but, we barely see Asher Angel in this movie. Yeah. Well, even in the first. Mm. Oh, there was way like more of him in the first movie. Way, way no, more. No, I, I know that, but like the disconnect. Yeah. And also, I think I agree with what you're saying, John, but I think that that's something they're coming up with against in a few of the performances, that the established characterization of these characters is perhaps younger now than the actors look because of the four years yeah. between the movies. Like, Oh, the, yeah. the youngest it, girl in the it, family yeah. is behaving like an eight-year-old, even though she's clearly, like, maybe 13, 14. Mm. Yeah, it's like, the, the the gap is plainly obvious. Yeah. But generally, the other members of the Shazam family I really like. J again, Jack Dylan Grazer has a fantastic career ahead of him. He's got a few scenes where he has to do multiple things all at once, and... He's doing a very good job there, and he's one of the main focuses of the most horrific scene in the film, which I didn't know they were going to go that hard. I enjoyed Rachel Zegler here as well. She did a really good job at creating this relationship between her and Freddy. Good chemistry. They've got an easy chemistry, and it was a really well-done job. Jimon Honsu gets more to do here, which is very much appreciated, and you get to see some of his... Uh, not only dramatic chops, but his comedic chops as well, hmm. which is fun to see. I liked this more than the original Shazam, even though there were parts of the original that I think played better. Overall, the entire package of this one hmm. was more cohesive, the scope was larger, and it was able to say some things about Billy Batson that are really, really interesting. Um... I, if anyone has been paying attention, have been really losing interest in the efforts of the DCEU long before it became clear that they were going to be resetting everything. Um, I just have found the DCEU to be, from its very inception, wildly erratic in terms of tone, in terms of quality, but I've thought that these past few years have been particularly dismal. Um, 
that said, I think that this is a really solid movie, a really fun movie, and it is to its great misfortune that it is swept up in the wake of the complete and utter collapse of what they've been doing. It's also coming out in not a great spot. Yeah, and it's also it. I I would argue has been badly marketed. That it looks, oh, yeah, for yeah, sure. it look every trailer I saw of it, I was like walked away going, I just can't care about that. It looks yeah. like a PG rated family movie from the early two thousands. But it like it's like the first movie is very charming. Um, has more of an edge than you'd expect it mm. to have. <laughs> uh, but really, I mean, the oxygen in the room is kind of gone, and I think that the box office reception to this movie does not augur well for the flash and for aquaman later this year i think actually it, it will be i think the flash has a better chance than i think the others. The, i think aquaman has a better chance than the flash does yeah i've yet to meet anyone who is like a huge flash movie fan you know but mm. um i mean and aquaman has at least a prior track record the Flash doesn't yeah. even before you get into billion the, dollar. Yeah, even movie. before you get into the Ezra Miller of it all, the Flash doesn't. Um, but yeah, I think if any, if nothing else, this the the box office failure of this film, and it is a failure. Let's not beat around the bush. Um, is just proof that it's time yeah. to cut our losses. It's time to shut it all down. Um, there's no point in carrying anything over. Um, but. Uh, it's a good follow-up to the first movie, and it's good in the sense that it uh, stands alone from the rest of the DCEU. For the most part, it does tell a contained story that is differentiated from pretty much anything else that the DCEU has done. And in the ways that it isn't contained, in the ways that it does try and connect to the other DCEU movies, those are the worst parts of it. Those are the parts mm. that don't work. Um, but really, the chemistry of the actors here is what makes it go. I think it's a brilliantly acted movie. I really like what Levi is doing. Uh, I think Rachel Ziegler and Jack Dylan Grazer are both fantastic. I agree with you both that Jack Dylan Grazer seems like he could be like a real movie star, like a, a Tom Holland type or a mm. Anton Yelchin type. Because he was very good in it. Mm. Mm. But um, Grazer aside, I think that the balance between the kid actors and the adult actors playing their Shazam in incarnations are off. Um, yeah. and we, we spent so much more time with the adult actors than the kid actors, Grazer aside. Um, and I think that that is kind of... It's, it's a bit of a misjudgment, I think, because it does kind of create a disconnect between the sort of foster family nature, uh, perhaps just a little... It, but um Mirren is excellent uh she brings an automatic gravitas to it and there are like moments there where she's just so steely and you're just like oh yeah Helen Mirren's doing her Helen Mirren thing I mean it's it's the same effect that you get bringing Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart into the X-Men this sort of like yeah he, the Shakespearean actors can come in and well like and I, I really I, hit it out of the park with this stuff Whenever a new new movie comes out, DC Comics publishes interviews with actors in recent issues of their books. Um, and in one of the interviews with Helen Mirren, she said, I had to put myself into perspective of the character. It's Shakespearean, her story. It's, you know, yeah. she's trying to get her father's power back. Well, this is not personal. Only, not only that, but I always hear surprise from some quarters. Oh, 
why would this person do this movie? Why are Ian McKellen or Helen Mirren or, or that stuff? They, it seemed like they're Shakespeare, you know. Why would they? You, you wouldn't think that they'd be in this sort of popcorn fantasy entertainment. I'm thinking to myself, it's Shakespeare. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> you're right. It's Shakespeare. You know, Midsummer Night's Dream, people are getting turned into donkeys. The Tempest is about a wizard on an island. I mean, like... People get baked into goddamn pie. That's Titus Andronicus, but oh. your, the point stands. Yeah. But, like, the whole thing. I mean, magic... Coriolanus, Coriolanus is badass and batshit insane in its own right. But, like, the whole sort of fantasy magic thing, that's, yeah. like, deeply ingrained in And, I mean, in these characters that these Shakespearean actors take on are deeply Shakespearean sort of archetypes of characters. The Hespera is basically a character from one of... Shakespeare's fantasies. Magneto is just an incredibly complex character if you look at his backstory and his psyche. I mean, all of it is there. Mm. The Shakespeare's plays were mass entertainment. Mm. But anyways, I think there are some real funny moments in this movie. There are some cute ideas. But then, as, as both of you have intimated, every now and then there's just a moment that reminds you that, all oh, right, David Sandberg is a horror director. Mm. Um, a particular moment on a roof is the movie's most sort of like shockingly cruel scene <laughs> in a way that like makes you start like it's great. Don't get me wrong, like, but it's some like, could say like, unnecessary. Oh, I'm like, absolutely unnecessary. I've, like, I've seen them like in. I've seen the actors in interviews, and Zachary Levi has said this is a good family movie, and I'm like, guy, at points, yes, but. As a whole, yeah, I can't and, and, give you a vote of confidence on that one. And there were some families in my theatre, and I've got to say the kids weren't connecting with it. Like, even before that, that like there mm. was a, just all of the gods and changing in and out. Like, it was too high concept for the younger mm. ones to mm. wrap their minds around. Um, and yeah. they were starting to irritate me because they were getting up and making noise and moving around the place too much. But mm. anyways, um, I, I do think also that Shazam, more than anything else, is written like a Marvel movie. It's it's yep. desperately chasing Spider-Man. Um, but uh, I'm also super confused about the cosmology of the DCEU at this point. Like, I don't have to worry about it anymore, but um, <laughs> it's like the... I, I, like I said with the plot thing, I don't quite understand all of the different threads anymore. They've done a terrible, terrible job of mm. expanding that out and explaining... It's just been like Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Shazam have just cobbled together these concepts with as they need them with no thought to how they fit together in the whole. And that's Wait. become a real problem. But isn't that a great summation for the DCEU as a concept? It's cobbled together with duct tape and crepe paper. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I th what, what, what is the thing that you sort of pushed up against the most in this movie in terms of the cosmology. I was just trying to, I was just trying to figure out the relationship of the daughters of At daughters of Atlas to the actual Greek gods to what Wonder Woman's got going on, and then right. That so put, yeah, but then that took me down the rabbit hole of like, is this like every god like full stop in all of human history? Is are they part of the DCEU and are they like the same as the Marvel iterations, which aliens or are they? Like, it's just, it's, and, and they all died out, okay, and I remember we talked about a lot of that stuff in Wonder Woman, but, like, what happened to these guys, and they referenced, like, Hades at this point, it was just straight up Helen Mirren's uncle, 
and I'm just like, what is even going on here anymore? Mm. And it, like that the Hades movie reference should have been you're acting just like Ares because Ares is the one who killed all of the gods. But the what the thing of it? Well, yeah, but is it like so? That's the thing that I don't get. Is it like um he killed all of the Greek Greco-Roman gods, gods yes. or did yeah. he kill all of the other gods? Greco-Roman gods, right? He so, only had access to his own pantheon. It's, it's, see, exactly, they exist like, in their own sort of. We'll go over this the, is the issue. Like, that was the map thing with that, you. Like, at some they're point. not aliens. Yeah. It's like Lens- in DC, the characters are more connected yeah, to like magic. It, yeah, it doesn't matter anymore. Clearly, it's never mattered for any of these movies. They've never cared enough to explain yeah. it. But like something like Thor: Love and Thunder, I got because they went and visited the space god UN. Yeah. But, <laughs> um. But uh, anyways, um, I, I will say here that the most frustrating part of this movie, the biggest mark against it, is that it passes up the opportunity for a really genuinely mm. impactful ending, mm. a surprising ending that would have yeah. marked a really interesting and sort of brave way to finish off this sort of two-film series. And instead, they reverse it all and undo it all <laughs> In the silliest, most sort of like, like lamest fashion, and mm. then pepper the end credit scenes with intimations of sequels that they've known <sighs> for months, surely are never going to come. And I just, I just don't understand the commitment to this bit. I mean, I get, I get that there is kind of a of a PR promotional thing. They're trying so desperately to convince us that Shazam and Aquaman might still matter in whatever the new mm. DCU thing wants to look at. They're trying to keep that fiction going in the hopes that if they do, it won't damage the box office too much. But we all know, when none of us are idiots, we all know that this is done. And the the fact that they have, in the end, undermined the ultimate longevity of this as a standalone piece mm. in favour of what really ended up being the, like the scene that I hated of the film. Um, yeah, no. That yeah. second post-credit scene could have stayed though, because yeah, that that's actually fine. making a joke about <laughs> how nothing's gonna come from it. I, the, I was, the first I was post- promised an evil mastermind worm, and I didn't get it. I'm disappointed. The first post-credit scene, I was like, oh, really, we're doing this. But the scene I'm referring to that I hated the most is yeah, the yeah, scene yeah. where yeah, they. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Anyways, at home, we of course talked about Kick-Ass last week. I watched Kick-Ass 2, uh, the superhero comedy directed by Jeff Wadlow. It's based on the comic series written by Mark Millar and illustrated by John Romita Jr. And it's set two years after the first movie when Dave, played by Aaron Taylor-Johnson, and Mindy, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, are struggling to find purpose without their alternate life of being superheroes. And Mindy's really feeling like she needs to honour her father's wish which was that she not be a superhero anymore and try and live a normal life dave though is getting a bit itchy and uh he joins a team of vigilantes that were inspired by his work when he was still doing superhero stuff they are led by colonel stars and stripes played by jim carrey and they end up coming into conflict with chris d'amico played by christopher mintz plass who was from the first movie sort of the shitty son of the mob boss from the first movie but he's now going like full supervillain and is trying to make his own sort of team of supervillains to commit crime um this doesn't come together nearly as well as the first movie but in a lot of ways it's 
more ambitious and complex. So much darker. So much darker. It's really about consequences. Clumsily so, but when it works, it does work. Um, And it is, in addition to being darker, nastier too. Um, It has some pretty mean moments in it, and it sometimes crosses a line uh, in a way that doesn't work. But other times, again, it can be very effective when it actually is working. Uh, I do like a lot of the stuff that's going on with with Mindy's subplot. She's sort of trying to live a normal life, and it's sort of this fun idea of putting Hit Girl in this sort of Mean Girls teen movie. She's all that kind of um, kind of story, uh, and it's a whole lot more interesting than Dave's stuff, at, at least for most of it. I mean, again, it's about consequences. It's about the fallout of our actions, um, and the, it's it's a stacked cast. Uh, Moretz is a a much more considered actress in this movie. She's matured as a performer so much in the three years between the first movie and this one. Um, But uh, Kerry is also very interesting. He's playing very much against type. Mm. Yeah, so much so that it permanently put him off playing characters of that type. Well, no, it wasn't that. He didn't really seem to have a problem with it. But then after filming, but before the movie came out, Sandy Hook happened. And he started yeah. getting super like concerned about violence in media, which yeah. you know, look, this is it's, it's a personal choice. Yeah. So I don't know. Jim Carrey's done way more damaging things in movies than he does in these um, more corrosive to the social fabric, like <laughs> Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> but um, uh, there are too many characters in the end, though. It's just too wide a bench full of supporting characters for them all to get good moments. It leaves a lot of them underdeveloped, but it does all build to an extremely strong third act. I think that the darkness coheres into something that really works, and I think the action is really well done. It's much crazier than the action in the first movie. Mm. And I'm looking at the credits on this, and I'm like, this was from Jeff Wadlow, the man who brought me my guilty favourites, Truth or Dare, and Fantasy Island, the horror movie. <laughs> um <laughs> His movie after this starred Kevin James, for Christ's sake. Like, how, like, I've said it before, Jeff Wadlow is my, my favourite trash director. You know, I know his movies aren't good for me, but God, they, they go down smooth. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was really, really surprised to see his name in the credits here. And, and you know what? After this, I think that there's a really, there's actually quite a strong argument in the end for one more kick-ass movie. And I do wonder if we will get it eventually. I mean, it does seem like the kind of thing where if you did a movie that took place 10, 15 years after the last one, you could do some really interesting commentary on superheroes. I I actually feel like the longer they wait, the more interesting it is. Mm -hmm. If you bring Chloe Grace Grace Moretz and Aaron Taylor-Johnson back right at the tail end of this current superhero craze, like right when it's about to die out and really like, put it to bed, so to speak. I think that that could be a really interesting film. Mm. Um, I hope that it has the kind of cultural cachet to get there. I think they'd, it'd have to be an independent, like a smaller film. And I mm. know that Matt, um, Mark Malara said that he's going to like reboot it. And I'm just like, I don't think we really need to do that. Um, I think it would be more interesting to come back to this original interpretation. But if you would like to see it in Australia, it's available for streaming on Binge and Foxtel now. That's if Aaron Taylor-Johnson isn't busy being a prospective 007. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
wouldn't it be kind of interesting? Like we've got like Pierce Brosnan and Daniel Craig and Sean Connery and they're these big tough guys. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a Bond that also has in his filmography a movie where he gets beaten up by Chloe Grace Moretz? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um. Anyways, uh, I also next saw a another comic book movie, although a sort of less successful and kind of smaller comic book, The Losers. It is an action movie directed by Sylvain White. It's based on the 2003 reboot of The Losers comic, written by Andy Dickel and illustrated by uh, a gentleman who only goes by the name Jock. Yes, uh, I'm, I'm quite familiar with that dude's work. Uh, and it's about a team of black ops operatives. Clay, played by Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Jensen, played by Chris Evans. Roke, played by Idris Elba. Pooch, played by Columbus Short, and Cougar, played by Oscar Janeda. And they are burned on an operation by a shadowy superior of theirs, Max, played by Jason Patrick. And so they go off-grid, and very much A-Team style, they're out to get revenge and to stop his current plot. Um, And so they team up with the mysterious Aisha, played by Zoe Saldana, who has motives of her own. This uh, is just a B-movie. It's such a B-movie. It would be a Netflix original today, crack the top 10 for one week only, and then disappear, never to be referred to ever again. It it really is that kind of of film. And it had terrible luck. It released just before the actual A-Team movie. And this is the A-Team just so much, in all but name. Um, It's competent. It's fun. The plot is nothing new, but it is a a meat and potatoes sort of a, a take with plenty of seasoning the characters are all archetypes but they get by thanks to a decent cast and this movie was lucky enough to land zoe saldana and uh chris evans just as they were getting huge Mm. uh and you know max is a fun villain a lot of his stuff is overwritten and super cliche but patrick gets a chuckle out of me every now and then he he has some interesting lines and some fun sort of sarcastic asides to his henchmen uh even if it is a bit not just a bit, hugely, hugely a cliche. Uh, it's a line of his that I, I quite enjoy and I've remembered ever since I first saw this movie because I have seen it multiple times. I saw it in the cinema when it came out. Um, he's asked, like, you know, why why are you selling these nuclear weapons to, you know, bad guys? You know, what, what what's going to happen? And he says, well, it's like giving a loaded gun to a five-year-old you're not exactly sure what's going to happen but you're pretty sure it's going to make the papers <laughs> um and he has some interesting you know stuff like that that i get a chuckle out of but it's a small movie a, a 25 million dollar budget and it's a decent scale considering that budget the action is fairly small scale all of the finale takes place at a fairly nondescript docks with lots of storage containers uh hardly inspiring but the more interesting action happens before then. And uh, I wonder if that was just poorly structured in that regard. They do throw in like a really on-the-nose sequel tease at the end and, you know, get real. Like they should have known <laughs> long before this this movie actually came out in theatres that it wasn't going to happen. But if you would like to check it out, it's available in Australia on Netflix and Binge. Lastly, this week I saw Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. It is a fantasy adventure film directed by Mike Newell. It's based on now Ubisoft uh, published video games. It didn't start from Ubisoft, but that's where it's ended up. 
It's set in the ancient Persian Empire, which is, of course, largely modern-day Iran, and it follows Dastan, played by everyone's favourite Iranian, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, he is a street urchin turned prince, and his f- family, who you know run this kingdom, they've just conquered this city. But then the king is assassinated in the immediate aftermath, and Dastan is accused of being the culprit, and so he's got to escape with the captured princess of this conquered city, Tamina, played by Jemmy Artisan, who is the guardian of the Dagger of Time, which is powered by the Sands of Time, which go into the a little capsule in the hilt. And if you press this jewel at the bottom of the dagger on the hilt, uh, it will turn back time like maybe 30 seconds. And so he uses that to escape, but then he's got to unravel who actually killed his adopted father and, of course, how the Sands of Time factor into that, because, of course, they do. Um, this is, is he a, a Prince of Persia? You, you might say so, John, yes. Um but uh, this is a fun, largely competent adventure. I mean, as far as video game movies go, it's top tier. Uh, it melds a pretty fun adventure story over the game concepts in a in a fun way. It, it takes the gameplay concepts of the video game and uses them in a largely original story in a, in a pretty fun way. It leans really heavily into the sort of time manipulation angle, and it walks the line of giving Destan this power, but also not giving him enough power to erase consequences. You know, there's still stakes, which is always the thing that you've got to be careful about when you've got this type, particular type of time travel in, in a movie. Um, but it, it does butt up against a 2010 lack of self-awareness. Obviously, there is the casting. Uh, and, you know, maybe stop bringing up slaves. You know, maybe you don't need the multiple mentions of how... Your characters, some of your like main characters are like operating, it seems, in this system of slavery. Um, but uh, Hole is a fun lead. He takes a little while to warm up, but I think that once he is no longer the prince, once he is on the run, he starts to work pretty well. Um, and Ben Kingsley is is a great supporting performer here. He's really better than the rest of the movie around him. And you get Alfred Molina as this quite fun sort of anti-establishment comedy relief who is running these ostrich races in the middle of the desert to get away from taxes. Uh, That's odd because you can't usually trust Alfred Molina hmm. when he appears in movies. But um, it's a the CG holds up pretty well too. I mean, this was a big Disney movie and, and you can still find it on Disney Plus in Australia if anyone's interesting. But if anyone's interested... I don't care if you're interesting, you'll probably still be able to get it there. But uh, that's me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? Uh, so we've got a just a couple of things. The first is a series that we started last week, but in our way, we, for certain series, we'd like to give it another episode to really see where we've landed on things. We have watched the first two episodes of Gotham Knights, which is, of course, the utterly pointless uh, CW series based on... Batman characters. Uh, I, mean, I say that because there are a good portion of Batman Universe characters present here, except for our lead, who is a canon foreigner. But also, like, even though this didn't have to be. This poor, poor series is facing down not only Papa Zaslav, but also the current executive directorship of the CW. It's got no chance. Enjoy it while it no. lasts, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and I probably will. Uh, the story behind this is. Uh, Bruce Wayne is murdered, 
and his adopted son, Turner Hayes, played by Oscar Morgan, is framed for the murder. Uh, he apparently... It was... He is framed for the murder. Uh, it is suggested he paid for his killing uh, by Duella Doe, played by Olivia Rose Keegan, Colin Rowe, played by Tyler DeChiara, Harper Rowe, played by Fallon Smythe. Uh, it is suggested that they are the ones who killed Bruce Wayne, but of course they did not. Uh, and they go on the run. But there is a shadowy organization hidden be behind the granite and the lime, uh, uh, who have been always? ruling Gotham forever, basically. Uh, and they want to hunt them down to cut off all the loose ends, so to speak. John, uh, say a short piece about it. I like this for what it is. That we're getting to see a version of the Court of Owls who are very comics accurate in terms of their behavior, their aesthetics, the way that they're talked about in hushed whispers. I they really use the rhyme properly this time? It uses the rhyme, and I really enjoy all of that kind of thing. I think the performances of our main cast, particularly the girl who plays Duella Dent, are very good. I was concerned about the... Duella Doe. It's yeah. not... I was Duella concerned Dent about the character because she is said to be the daughter of the Joker, and I thought, oh, great, here we go. It's left in the air, though. But I like the performance... Whenever it's focusing on her, that's when the show is really becoming entertaining. Uh, this main character, though, this adopted son of Bruce Wayne, he didn't need to be named Turner Harper or whatever his... Turner Hayes. Turner Hayes or whatever his name is. Could have been Dick Grayson. Wouldn't have made really any difference. Uh, but For points, they could have they could have done... Uh, any uh, number. The signal, uh, any Duke number. Thomas. Yeah, any number of... Uh, members of the Bat family, most of whom actually show up in this, which is, which goes even further to make you question the motivations behind the renaming. Uh, but I'm interested in the mystery behind this. Uh, I'm interested in all of this Court of Owls thing. And yeah, that's really it. We're in the second episode. Uh, and we're going to get to see... Um, Misha Collins as... We have Misha Collins as Harvey Dent, which is interesting, and I really want to see And we know his, for certain he's going to become Two-Face. He's going to get half his face scarred, and he's apparently going to look really gnarly, which is cool. But, yeah, this is... This isn't on the chopping block. It is in the... Its head is in the basket already. Its belongings are being spread amongst the crowd, and someone's going home with a new pair of shoes. It's so much so that you really hope that the creative team saw the writing on the wall and wrote it in a way that could work as a limited series, as it will inevitably turn out to be. <laughs> Part of me hopes not. <laughs> uh, just for how amusing that would be if there's still like shit left in the air at the end. It's that little bit of glee that Harley gets when he's playing the PS5 Spider-Man game and he throws someone off of a building, but they get webbed to the side. And it's like, no, how, no. how are they going to get down from there? No, no. Who knows? That's a no, no. Those are series that get saved eventually. I'm talking about when I launch them too far. Yeah. And there is no way they're hitting a building. Yeah. Um, but for my impressions on Gotham Knights, I like it well enough. I am less entertained and more curious yeah. about it. I love all the Court of Owls stuff. The Court of Owls, I've always loved them in the comics. They have such a cool aesthetic. They have talents acting like the actual 
talons and mm. looking like the actual talons this time around, which shouldn't have actually been that hard, Gotham. Uh, but Gotham is its own kettle of fish. Yeah. Like, bad but shit I, bad. I, I like what they're doing here. Turner Hayes is utterly pointless. <laughs> but I like what Oscar Morgan is doing here. Um, this is a uh, adopted son of Batman who had no idea yeah. that, that Bruce was the Dark Knight. And so he's finding that out the moment everyone else finds out. Yeah. And it's after Bruce's death. Uh, even though I don't I don't really think... There's more to it. Do we want to put quotation marks around Bruce's death? Because it could go either way. It could honestly. go either way when you've got the Court of Owls involved uh, because of the nature of the talents and yeah. death in comic book media. Mm. Um, I like what a lot of the supporting cast is doing. I really like what... Tyler DiChiara and Fallon Smythe are doing as the Rose siblings. Mm. I have seen them several times in the comics. Uh, Harper Rowe is Bluebird, and Colin Rowe is basically her guy in the chair. Um, I like Anna Laura's Stephanie Brown. They made references to her father, Arthur Brown, uh, who in the comics is the Clue Master, so there's a lot there that I'm kind of We've got running waiting theories. them to pull the thread on. We've got running theories as to what they could do. Uh, but like... I'm really sad for Misha Collins, because he's kind of perfect for a, a TV show Harvey Dent, like yeah. a TV show level Harvey Dent, Yeah, but he's getting one season. Yeah. Uh, I'm so glad that they've kind of fast-tracked it and are going to let him be Two-Face at least once. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know when he's getting the scar scars, I don't know when he's getting any of that happen, I hope it's midway through. Yeah. Um, So we get plenty of him back off, but... Again, there's a lot here I'm interested in. I like what Olivia Rose Keegan is doing as Duella. Uh, her backstory is that she was born and grew up in Arkham. Yeah. Uh, so she's been around all of the supervillains and stuff her entire life. She grew up knowing them. Uh, and while she claims to be the Joker's daughter, she could be any number of villains' offspring. Or just none. Or just none. And that's the compelling part of that character in specific, both in the comics and here, even though it's a much more heroic turn this time around. But, oh, uh, we also get, which, which was a real surprise to me, David Bradley is Joe Chill. Pinhead, yeah. Mm. Uh, who saw that coming? Doug Bradley. Da yeah, Doug I was going to say, David yeah, Bradley sorry. is Filch. Yeah. No, no, sorry. Doug oh, Bradley, dear, the actor for Pinhead, plays Joe Chill, Although uh, which is... David Bradley as as Judge Hill, like old bitter Judge Hill, would have been pretty <laughs> that would cool be nuts. too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Doug Bradley's here for some reason. I'm I'm at least compelled by that. Hey, he's working. Yeah, he's working. <laughs> um, but yeah, this isn't long for the world. Um, I do hope it's just this first season though that we actually do get it continued. Uh, there's no timeline in which this gets a second. No, every uh, time. Every Not time with... we see the opening credits, it's like walking into palliative care. Yeah, it's it, like it's not. It's not just because of Zaslav. It's not just because of how the CW is being managed currently. It's also James Gunn and Peter Safran are trying to do like a lot of cohesion between TV yeah. and the films and stuff. And this does not fit in that. And this does definitely not fit in that. Um, I but... still think that it would be so smart for them to greenlight a six-episode limited series that wrapped up all of the <coughs> CW stuff as, like, a multiverse kind of thing. Mm. Like, a big sort of Crisis on Infinite Earths kind of wrap-up. 
Esk, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but can then... bring over the people from Titans, from Doom Patrol, in significant roles? Sure, Have bring them in these people. With... Bring in, you know, Legends of Tomorrow. Bring in Lois and Superman again. Like, there's a way but to just... Lois and Superman are getting another season after this one. So, they are. No, they are. They've confirmed as much. Yeah. All right, um, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, well, but they confirmed still, another Iron Fist season, and, you know, look what happened with that. Um, they didn't confirm another Iron Fist season, did they? I think they did. At the time. At the time, at the time they time. did, and then it was like that. No, right. no, but Superman and Lois still earns the money, so but yeah. just, I give that one benefit of the doubt. Just call it. Just, like, just wrap it up. Give it, like, it, it, it's a really fairly, um, fairly... An inelegant end for a lot of this stuff if they didn't. And I think it's just, it's good future proofing. It's good future proofing to just fund a six episode limited series thing that will basically make it a, a, like all of these series a complete entity to sit in the archive on HBO Max for Hmm. in perpetuity. They're they're Uh, doing that with the last season of The Flash, where they're finishing the stories of people from Supergirl. uh, I mean, Stephen Amell's coming back for an episode. Yeah. So they're wrapping things up in that. I mean, they've made a lot of noise about um, not having Legends in the final yeah, season. Yeah, the, the plan was if they were going to get another, they would have had the Legends in there, but they had to accelerate plans when well, they heard that. Yeah, they this were one saying was that. If, well, well, no, the thing I read was that if it was going to be a twenty-episode season like normal, but then they yeah. found out it was going to be thirteen episodes, which oh, we need all that time. Bullshit. You know, Game of Thrones did so much in ten episodes. You've got thirteen. You can dedicate one episode to you know, wrapping up a little storyline here. Like, get Uh, real. But my last word on Gotham Knights, blimps. In other Gotham City media, the Batman, DCU Batman stuff, Bear from the Bold, blimps. Gotham City needs blimps, like Gotham Knights has. Yeah, this is like the one thing they have over everything else. Limited series, speaking of blimps. I'm just saying, like, have him walk up and be like, who are you? (laughs) Um... But but yeah, it's fine. I'm curious about it. We'll see what happens. We also watched a very acclaimed film this week, and it was one that we had to watch before we got to the list. It didn't end up making it on, but it was still an extremely strong film. We watched All Quiet on the Western Front, directed by Edward Berger, starring Felix Kammerer, Albrecht Stusch, and Aaron Hilmer. This follows a group of young soldiers and their terrifying experiences and distress on the Western Front during World War One. This is an adaptation of the novel All Quiet on the Western Front and follows a lot of that same story but deviates in very interesting ways where it's got a very it's got a different message than the original novel and other adaptations, but is saying something that is very much in keeping with the themes and the message of the original. But I'll let Harley have his piece about it. Uh, so I'm pretty familiar with the the first film adaptation that came out in the 30s. I think it's harrowing. It's incredibly effective, and some of, that, some of those shots are going to stick with me for a very long time. Uh, but I also quite like this version. I haven't seen the one that was in between, the two, and I don't really think I need to, uh, but I really like what's going on here. Like, Hollywood has kind of nailed the World War One, World War Two aesthetic. Like, really solidly, they've got that down pat. Even 
uh, smaller scale films like uh, Ghosts of War can hit that aesthetic really hard and make it sing. Um, I still think the peak of World War Fiction for me is probably 1917. That's my favorite, at least. Uh, but there's a lot of really strong stuff here. I love the opening sequence to this movie. It is brutal. It is heartbreaking when you realize what is happening, and you just get this sinking feeling in your stomach when you go, oh yeah, they kind of have to do that. Recycling. Um, it has a lot of really strong performances. It's performed in its native German, which gives the movie its own energy, as opposed to an English language retelling would. Um, you can really see that transformation of these excited schoolboys to soldiers, and it comes upon them quick. Mm. Uh, they do not get much time to celebrate being soldiers before they're thrown, in, thrown into the shit of it, and that's a real strength here, because everything happens all at once, and it's brutal. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It's got great performances, great story, but it does make a deviation that I don't like. And I don't know if I could talk about that. Uh, Lawson, are you familiar with the... No, I'm not. No. Version? Right. Uh, so, spoilers for a don't. movie from the 1930s. It's not from. It's not that key scene. It's uh, one of the ones in the middle. Uh, the, the boy we follow uh, is allowed to go on leave. And he goes back home and he confronts the adults that were in his life, his teachers, his parents, particularly his father, who have no perspective on the war. Who think that, oh, it's for the... It's glorious, it's, you know, you're a soldier, you're a warrior, but he does not feel any of that pride, he has been in the thick of it, and he knows how terrible it is, and he can't fathom why they don't, like, it, a scene like that is meant to, is meant to show the struggle of going back, and how after something like that, it can be very, very difficult for someone who's become acclimatized to always being on. Um, but yeah, it does share one of the most brutal uh, scenes from the book and subsequent adaptations, and that done is done incredibly well. Uh, it is striking how when all words fade away, we're left with just the most awful noises um, that we hear from others and from ourselves, and that trauma is played exceptionally well. Um, yeah, I have to give major props to Felix Kammerer as <clears throat> the main character, uh, Paul Bauer. He goes through the emotional ringer in this film. He's running through mud. He's wearing proper army uniforms from World War One. He's The clothes are soaking wet, so it's even more heavy. He's carrying a replica gun which is just as heavy as a normal one, and he's doing all of this. And at the same time, he's got all of this horror and despondency on his face. The destruction of his humanity that you see throughout the film, the dereliction of duty by the people in charge towards these boys who are in their care is incredible to witness. This was done brilliantly they make a change from the original where we actually see the discussions of the armistice between mm. german high command and the french high command and they are very important for this version 
because they are showing the comparison between how comfortable their discussions are and how utterly dismaying and pitiable and pathetic the way that these boys mm. die were. Uh, the, in every single one of those scenes, uh, somebody is eating mm. something, and it's it's so frustrated because food is a major motif. Yeah, it is in the story, and it just shows the difference. And it's so plain to see. Yeah, at one point you have one of the French colonels pick up a croissant or a profiterole and say, are these fresh? The person he's talking to says, no, they're a day old. And the sort of look on the this guy from High Command's face is incredible <laughs> considering the fact that if they're lucky, they get good food in the trenches. They have to steal geese in order to eat like we can eat anytime now. we want. And mm. you see the camaraderie between the characters here, and it's incredible. They all went through the same boot camp as each other in terms of just the actors doing it, the training mm. they went through, and you can see how close they've become. The way that the war is portrayed here is pure nightmare. The way that they, the things that they go through, the fact that you see, you see these boys lose their minds when under mortar fire, and it is distressing to watch. There are no heroes here. This isn't 1917, where we are following one guy and do, him doing an incredibly brave and heroic thing and succeeding somewhat, failing but succeeding, and that is in essence really interesting to watch and a really good film and has a lot of messages in this it's... like don't stop to talk to random french ladies when you should be getting to the destination you're trying to get to he is exactly. solely responsible for the deaths of many many people for that little yeah. detour yeah yeah you do not pivot you stay stick on focused task when you're and i will never let that go i leant over to the person i was seeing that movie with in that scene and i was like shouldn't he be like getting to where he's supposed to be going and then yep <laughs> and he arrives literally like three minutes after the fighting mm. starts if he just didn't talk to that french lady yeah <laughs> but what what but, uh, that that's that's lawson's sort of pet peeve about that but this he movie... likes when his shit arrives on time <laughs> lawson's a list guy he has his reasons he's very analytical but this movie shows that the front, the Western Front in World War One was hell on earth. They, mm. when they go over the top, when they're not in the trenches anymore, it is just pure chaos. Mm. It is people rolling around in the mud, hitting each other with whatever they've got. Mm. They fire their guns, but when the guns are empty, they use them as clubs. When they don't have their, when they don't have their guns, they use their shovels that they dig trenches with. Trench they, shovels. I, I I actually really like that they implemented the implemented those. Yeah. Because you don't really see that very often. Like soldiers would be equipped with a trench shovel not only to dig the trenches, but also dig holes for their shit. Uh dig holes to just bury comrades, but also as a weapon. Yeah, and that scene that Holly was talking about, there's <laughs> there's a scene in the in a bomb crater, which is <sighs> utterly chilling. It's like raw humanity. Yeah. Uh, it pulls it, us back to our animalistic it's, roots. It's an exposed nerve. 
and it's very well performed by Felix. I also have to give props to the composer of this, who actually won an Oscar for the score for this. I'm not 100% sure that I fully agree with that, but I definitely believe that Volker Bertelmann's score for this should have been nominated. Uh, It deserves deserves the nomination. The way that it uses a simple three-note motif during sequences is horrific in Mm. the most entertaining way. This these three notes show off the mechanical brutality of the war. The Mm. fact that this is a mechanism of human misery. And in all of how I'm talking about this movie, you would expect that I would have this on my best of the year list, but it isn't. For some reason it's not, because this year has just been fucking stacked and trying to decide has been like you say that teeth. every year though the only year that you guys don't say that was 2020 no but like specifically having watched 53 movies released from this past year 31 of the movies i had considered to be on the list it has been a horrific task to try and narrow it down to 10 and picking my top four as hell yeah, it's been extremely difficult, but uh, you can find this on Netflix. And we did watch another movie uh, this week that we will talk about when we get to it in one of our lists. Hmm. So that's going to be really interesting because, again, it was one that, depending on the day, could have been higher, could have been lower, could have been replaced entirely by something else. Yeah. It was a definite contender, but uh, Lawson has a pith take. I do, Yes. I went to the theatre again. Um, It is my last theatre trip for a little while. Uh, But I went and saw a brand new play. It was actually the first time it's ever been performed. It's written by a local uh, playwright and performed by a local troupe. Um, It is The Mystery of the Valkyrie, which is, as the title might suggest, a a mystery play written by Michael Futcher. And it is based on the characters and stories of Sherlock Holmes by Arthur Conan Doyle. And in it, Sherlock Holmes and John Watson are investigating a mysterious death that seemed linked to Professor James Moriarty. Uh, This is a a surprisingly ambitious movie. Um, Not movie, rather, play. It's, it's like I said, an original play. It is a world premiere. It was originally going to come out at the beginning of last year, but then all of the floods and COVID lockdowns happened at the beginning of last year, and it got pushed and pushed, and now here it is. Um, it feels very Holmesish. It's a very good pastiche of Holmes. It captures the spirit of the character and the spirit of those stories in a really fun way. And it remixes a lot. It doesn't sort of stand in the existing canon. It takes different elements of it and different pieces. Uh, Irene Adler, for instance, is a pretty big character in this and is not not the Irene Adler from the books. I mean, like she mm. is one one of the very first stories in the books and it's clear from this that they're towards the end of of um like they've been together a long time holmes and watson and uh irene adler is they've never heard of her before when she comes into the play and there are just bits and dial of dialogue and exchanges that are taken from directly from different stories uh but it it nails holmes as a character it's this sort of prickly cocaine user whose brilliance is the only thing that keeps most people talking to him um (laughs) And uh, that is a really, really effective uh, 
Holmes' really, really effective performance by Eugene Gilfeder, who is really brilliant in the role. He was actually originally going to be playing Moriarty when the show was set oh. to debut last year, but after all of the delays, I think three of the major cast members had to drop out because of scheduling, and uh, the guy who was going to play Holmes was one of them, and so Eugene was tapped to come in and take his place, and he is really phenomenal. Um Watson is a bit hopeless for my liking, though. There's a little too much of the Basil Rathbone to uh-huh. this version of Watson, and it's just not how I like my Watson. But um, it's a very 2021 plot. You know, you watch it, and it's very like, oh, yeah, this was definitely written in 2021. I mean, it's all about basically a deadly pathogen that might be being weaponized, um, and there is this sort of populist villain who's trying to make people upset about immigrants and inciting a march on the houses of parliament like Ooh. it's very much like oh yeah you you were watching the same news that all the rest of us were watching when you wrote this um that's a spicy pickle but the plot is complex with but without being full of itself without right. being sort of overly sort of byzantine it doesn't get so bogged down in trying to come up with a sherlock holmes mystery that it it forgets to do all of the charming stuff that makes Sherlock Holmes So unlike work. the last season of Sherlock? not I've not seen the last season of Sherlock, so I'll have to take your word for it, but it does run out of road at the end. It, it needed to do better work getting to the end point, and it doesn't quite have an ending that's very satisfying. It just sort of stops in a way that I found quite disappointing. But So in that uh, way, like the last season of Sherlock? Um... But uh, it's it's got an incredibly impressive staging. Like they do so much with all of these moving shapes that are like on wheels, like arches and blocks and things that they have on the stage that will come out and get switched around, like within a chase scene to give it the appearance of like traveling all over. And it becomes these sort of mazes of moving shapes that go around, and um, they have like staircases that are moving staircases that people are standing on as they're getting pushed. And it's very, very complex. And I would imagine kind of dangerous. The choreography of this is really extreme. Uh, And they do all this stuff with like projecting backdrops and things onto the back of the theatre. And there's some really creative sort of scenes where you see the sort of like mind palace nature of Sherlock Holmes, of him sort of like, coming out and slowing down a moment and replaying it in his mind. And um, it is just incredibly creative and well done in the way that it uses the stage as an idea. Uh, And that really was, I mean, it made me look up what else this company has done and has really made me want to keep track of what this director does, if he see what he does next, because I would be very interested to see if he makes a habit out of that. But, yeah, it's quite fun. I think you guys would quite enjoy it uh, if it ever comes back to uh, our area. But um, yeah, the mystery of the Valkyrie. I also have a pith take to do. I'm going to be talking about God of War, not the 2018 game and God of War Ragnarok released in 2020. But I won't be talking too in-depth about them because there are spoilers and plot things there that are very much good to witness yourself and we will be getting a tv show of it sort of last of us style uh in the coming years so that's really interesting but god of war follows kratos the spartan god of war from greece having 
left his homeland after utterly decimating its pantheon of Olympians, Titans, mythological figures, and beasts of plenty, he finds his way into Norway, into the land of the Norse gods, the Nornir, or sorry, the Aesir. And he comes into contact with many of the gods there, Baldr, Odin, Freya, and forms a family. He has a son with a giantess called Fae, named Atreus. Oh, no, 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 the, sorry, let me start that again. He has, a, he starts, yeah, he has a son with a giantess called Fae. The son's name is Atreus, played by Sonny Suljic. Kratos himself is played by Christopher Judge. And it's all about these two figures, Kratos and Atreus, trying to find their way through all of the dangers that the Norse world and Norse mythology can throw at them on their quest to scatter the ashes of Fae from the tallest peak of the realms. And God of War Ragnarok follows Kratos and Atreus and the upcoming apocalypse, which is Ragnarok, and all of that that is contained within. The consequences of the first game. The consequences game. of the first game. These are fantastic. The stories here are really great, and they're held together by great performances from Christopher Judge as Kratos, Sonny Soljic as Atreus, uh, Daniel Basuti as Freya, and Alastair Duncan as Mumia, who is a really interesting character who has a lot of history jumping between pantheons and has a lot of stories to tell. And that is also really interesting. The writing of these two games is really, really great. They were written by Corey Barlog, who directed 2018, but he hands the directing uh, chair over to Eric Williams for Ragnarok. And they do a really great job at capturing the same tone, the same vibe for the script, and they carry through these plot arcs, these character arcs, from between games exceptionally well. Ragnarok, I feel, is the better game overall. It is longer than 2018, which I ended up completing in two weeks when I was down with the spicy coronavirus. Completing, I did beat the Valkyrie Queen, for sure. But I was very much appreciative that the game, when I played uh, Ragnarok, was like, remember when you defeated the, Ra the Valkyrie Queen? I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But so, yeah. I really, really enjoy these. The relationship between Kratos and Atreus is very much a Joel and Ellie thing. Even though it talks about some different parts of parenthood, there are talks about power, about legacy, the legacy of violence that Kratos has. Being better. Being better than the person that you were. And being better is a, a major theme for Ragnarok, which I think is the most superior of the two games. It... The length of the game is far grander. The scope is far grander as well. We meet more of the Aesir. We meet the Nornir, who are the fates of that land. And we meet members of the Vanir. We also get more locations to go to. We go to each of the nine realms of Norse mythology. We visit locations that we didn't get a chance to in the first game. And it's just a more varied gameplay experience. You go up against... A far wider range of enemies, the combat is quicker, you move around the place far faster. You take a hit to the amount of damage you can deal out, but if you max out your stats and you get a really good combination of 
armors and weapon enhancements and amulets, you can really do some great amounts of damage to people. For people who have played them, I would draw a co- uh, comparison between uh, Doom and Doom Eternal. Yes, it's very uh, much it's, that. It's very much the speed is a cranked different up, kind of pace. and that somewhat goes to. There's more energy in the story of Ragnarok too. It's far funnier than the first game was, <clears throat> and you get more talking in this one. Yeah. It isn't just Kratos sort of grunting and saying boy as often as he did in the first 2018 game. He is learning how to speak the language. He's learning Norse script. He is growing his relationships with Brock and Sindri, the dwarves he who helped them in the first game. He has side quests where he is going around and following his son's lead and being better than he was. Well, it's not just that. It's like, who would have guessed Kratos? You know, the God of War guy. Yeah. Doing side quests to just help people? Yeah, and that's all very interesting. The the directions this game, the twenty the uh, God of War Ragnarok goes in, are fantastic. And you get a really fun performance by Richard Schiff as Odin, who so is good. just this He's like a mob, mob boss. boss. He's a mob boss, basically, of the Aesir. And he uses his, his son Thor, played by Ryan Hurst, as just a gun that he's pointing towards They're people. They're so good. And that is fascinating. The dialogue is bumped up in quality and, and consistency from the first game. And it was a pleasure to play through this game. I've still not 100% completed it yet, but the changes that they've made to the dialogue and the feeling, the fact that I'm playing the PS5 version, so I've got the haptic vibrations in the controller... Much like when I talked about Control uh, in the middle of last year, this really uses that kind of feedback that makes you feel in that world, which is great. There are also some poems that you find throughout the, fi- throughout the game, and they all have little references to prior Sony exclusives and other games. So there's a Last of Us 2 one. There's one about... Ratchet and Clank. Clank, there's Crash Bandicoot, but they're like written like Horizon uh, Zero Norse, Dawn. They're written like Norse poetic edits. Yeah, yeah they're, they're written in prose, yeah. which is a lot of fun. There's a lot of little things to find and stories and secrets to unveil in this game. And at so many hours in, I haven't even scratched the surface of some of the locations, which is fantastic. Mm. So uh, I so- very much suggest playing these two games or waiting for the tv show because there is so much in terms of the story and narrative there that is going to make a great show mm. you just have I'm to cast curious, it well because like you'd have to nail the backstory you have to establish who kratos is mm. uh before really getting into the story because if tv audiences don't have that context that all of us gamers <laughs> have from playing the previous ones yeah. or you know being tangentially hearing about them, uh, it doesn't work as well. So I'd be curious about how they sell that. Also, the game is the games are bloodthirsty as well. They didn't really pull their yes. punches from the older titles. Uh, yes. You can play all of them on PlayStations. I believe you can get the 2018 on the PS Plus yeah, you subscription. Can. So definitely definitely uh have a go get, with that you can get god of war 3 on the playstation but yeah. the first yeah. two you can't yeah yeah i know that awesome did you if you want to download it 
thing. Yeah. Yeah. Did you play the 2018 one? I haven't gotten to yet on my list. Oh, he's not there yet. That's right. Have you played <laughs> Still any in of the God of Wars? Pardon? Have you played any of the God of Wars? Yeah, I played all of them up until 2018. And what did you think? I like them all. I I like the look of the new ones. Yeah. I yeah. like a story-heavy game. and They're yeah, much more your speed. Story. So uh, now we are going to pivot into our uh, top 10 films of 2022 lists. Yep. So we will be back with that after this short break. ready to talk about our favorite films of 2022 uh that is an important note there our favorite films not necessarily the best we're not uh trying to come up with some sort of subjective ranking here uh if you were asking us to create a a movie of the best movies we have seen it would probably look different but you should be able to look at these lists of ours and you know these are the movies that connected with us you should be able to get a pretty good ranking of or a pretty good understanding rather of our taste in films uh we will be doing this as we always have done which is going around in the skype circle uh each of us saying our 10 each of us saying our nine etc etc we'll be going in alphabetical order so harley jean then me uh and if any of us says a movie that one of the other two has higher up on their list we will table it for later. These are full spoilers for these movies, mm-hmm. though. Uh, if you are concerned about spoilers, look in the uh, episode description. We have the lists, all of the lists there. Uh, you will be able to see where those spoilers might pop up. And I don't know, are we going to do the timestamps this year? Do you think, guys? I mean, it seems like it's going to be... It's sort of antithetical to our new philosophy of small timestamps are mm. simply not as easy to implement this time around yeah no we'll we'll give uh, we'll I'll tell you what let's um let's talk in generic terms and and keep spoilers to a minimum and, and always always give a verbal warning of you know skip forward a minute or two yep. when yeah. we're about to use spoilers so we'll try and make this as easy as possible but um yeah that's it uh just be aware there will be spoilers peppered through yeah, yeah. Uh, but we will give warning if we are yep. going to talk about spoilers. Um, uh, should we start with our honourable mentions? No, or I think we we'll just leave it at later. the end. I mean, it gives too much away if we start yeah, mentioning that's too a good many point. movies. You want to keep... You want there bit to be a bit surprise, of tension. Bit of tension. Um, so why don't we start off here? Uh, I will just... I, I'm, I'm also going to say here that we should probably keep to at least a five-minute... Min, um, maximum 
of how long to discuss each of these movies. I'm going to set a timer. So um, it hasn't really been a problem in the past, but just to sort of make sure that we don't go on too long about any of these. Uh, and yeah, I think that that is it. Um, so why don't you start us off, Harley? What is your number 10 favourite movie of 2022? My 10th favourite film of the year 2022 is Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone. Uh, it is, of course, based on the Joe Hill short story of the same name, but this is much more expanded. And I I just love it. It's got fantastic performances from the whole cast. The child performances are, like, fantastic stuff. The the scene where uh, Finney wakes up and sees his father uh, beating his sister uh, because she has, like, visions and dreams of the children who have been disappearing. That whole scene is just gripping. Masterful it has performance. some great, great performances in it. But I have to say, Ethan Hawke, man, yeah. as the grabber, he is so good. Like, one line he says is, you won't have to do anything you won't like. <laughs> that pause just kills me every time. It's um, it's a very, you can see the Stephen King influence there. Oh, I mean, absolutely. obviously Joe Hill is Stephen King's son, but like, it is such a sort of Stephen King kind of a story. Mm. There's that 80s aesthetic to it as well, which is quite... Quite strong. Well, seventies actually, Se yeah, seventies. Um, and that goes down to like the design of the characters. I love the design of the grabber. Yeah. Uh, in the original short story, he's more like a a clown sort of guy, and that's not quite so effective when you see what they've done in the movie. He's uh a magician, more like he's got the top hat. He's got he's like dressed like a guy from the seventies, and he's got this mask that is two segments, and he can alternate the different things, depending on his mood. And I love the control that a hawk has over his voice here. At some point, it's higher register, other points, it's lower. And you can tell that he's simply deranged. Uh, I also love how each of the dead boys helps Finney escape by the end. Uh, spoilers uh, for the Black Phone. Finney is getting calls on the Black Phone that's in the basement from the other murdered victims of the Grabber. And he uses all of these different lessons that he's learned from them, all these different bits and bobs of information, till he can finally ambush the grabber. And I'm going to hold off on the uh, details of that one. You do definitely need to see it. Uh, Suffice to say, this is not a kid who, by any re for any reason, should be getting bullied after this. Nah, he fucking takes this guy to the cleaners. Uh, and I, I just love how he puts the phone yeah. up to him. It's for you. Um. Music's all great as well. I love that he was able to Derrickson was able to implement the seven the, the nine millimeter stuff. Yeah. Uh that worked so well in Sinister here. Um yeah, just really, really great horror movie. It stuck with me. Yeah, I just think it's great. It's awesome stuff. I'm gonna interject here on the spoiler thing. Um I actually now we've I don't think it's gonna work the way that we're putting it into practice and it so I think that actually basically you're on your own, guys, if you're listening. Yeah. Um, ah, it's not going to work. If it's we, a retrospective. How could we possibly, like, be able to give you the exact, you know, skip forward 30 seconds, are we still talking about it then? Who knows? Um, but, like, just skip forward and, and until we're talking about a different movie, yeah, frankly. Yeah, basically. Like, inevitably, some of the stuff that we really, really like about these movies are going to be spoilers. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I There's... know for that, for my first, my number one pick... 
the ending is such a massive part of the reason why that movie is fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, The Black Phone, I just thought it was fantastic. I was gripped the whole time. All right, Jean, what is your number 10? So for number 10, it is Matilda the Musical. Interested to see that it's not on either of one of yours, but I loved what this movie was doing. This was the film that was on the bubble and was coming into conflict with some other ones like The Black Phone, like other films, but I appreciated so much of the performances in this. Uh, What's her name? Trunchbull in this. Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson is electric as Trunchbull. She is scary. That sequence, the smell of rebellion, where she's like, don't let them steal your horses. Don't let them take them them away. away. Is just an incredible piece of uncompromising weirdness. I do this... really enjoy that performance, although I just, you know, like, you bring it up and I still can't help but wonder Ray how Fiennes. good it would have Ray been Fiennes, with Ray yeah. Fiennes, that exact same scene, like, come on. But, like, Emma Thompson is great, but Alicia Weir as yeah. Matilda is, like, properly phenomenal. Yeah, and the camera just, she she eats up every scene that she's given. She does the darker, more tense, mature scenes really well, but also in a sequence like Naughty where she gets to be a little kid, where she gets to just have fun playing a prank. It's a great performance, and she sings the songs incredibly well. The orchestration of the Tim Minchin songs here is also incredibly strong. Like this I is spoke like about, the ideal version of the song. Exactly. Like I spoke about just a few, like a, a few seconds ago, The Smell of Rebellion. There are some great little musical touches, the presence of the electric guitar throughout many of the songs here. The school song itself, the fact that they're running through the alphabet, and it ramps up tempo, it ramps up the rock elements of the song in the second half, is just a piece of utter musical theatre brilliance. Dancing is fantastic too. That choreography is top-notch. Also, a song like My House... Uh, played by Lush- with Mrs. Honey, played by Lashana Lynch here, is a beautiful performance of this song. This is a heartbreaking sequence, and she plays it wonderfully. And When I Grow Up is also just a beautiful piece of music, full of sad irony, but also hope. And that's mm. what this movie has in spades. Also, and it's the, the choking. It's the director- the Chokey is, like, so much more fucked up and creepy than it was in the mm. Danny DeVito film, and I think that is great. I love the big chain monster at the end, how Matilda uses her powers to scare the Trunchbull. Well, I and... just think it's a more comfortable adaptation of the actual book than Danny DeVito's version yeah. is. I mean, Danny DeVito's version is a movie I like. It's a movie I watched as a kid, but it is taking away some of that role. It's an American version of it. And I don't gel with that when it comes to Roald Dahl adaptation. This is very British. Mm. You were saying, Harley? Oh, yeah. I would like to see a version of Groundhog Day. Yeah. uh, The Groundhog Day musical done by the same creative team. If they could get the director of this one back for that, that would be really fun too. Yeah. Uh, Because he has this way of translating Tim Minchin's songs and script to live action that really just nails yeah. it. 
But well, yeah, he, I... he was the director of the original. Yeah, he yeah. was. He did the stage show. Yeah. So it's just, it's the best version that they could possibly do. He goes between formats. Like, theatre is a wildly different thing to try and direct than film. It's But he, he di- nails it. He, na- he nails it, and he does a really good job here. It's confident. Yeah. My number 10 is a movie that I'm fairly confident we're going to be talking about later rather than now. Uh, it is Bullet Train. Yeah. Okay. All right, Harley, Harley, you're number nine. My number nine, and it may be a bit of a surprise to you, but 3,000 Years of Longing. Uh, I know that Lawson, you weren't too hot on the ending, but it's a story about stories. It hits me yeah. where I live. It's It's what I love. It's all about the nature of the story, how it can affect us, how it can infect us, how we rely on it for a sense of personal continuity. And how it we can also, carry a story for too long. It is also mm. the first of what I assume will be multiple movies on this list that I had to convince you to go because you went, oh, no, that doesn't look very interesting. And I, like and I've it said... Is, it is a number of movies on this list where I was like, yeah, I'm really interested, but Harley drives. Oh, shut up. <laughs> uh, but to be fair, I am really glad we saw it. It's got fantastic performances, fantastic writing. George Miller is just a very, very good director. This is very, very different in tone to his Mad Max films. It's pretty different in tone even to his Happy Feet, Happy I'd, Feet films. I'd say it's more similar to Happy Feet than but it is Mad Max. at the end of the day, Think about it, though. A- yeah, of course, but, like, that's... It's sort of like saying that a potato is more similar to an apple than, like, a rock is. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. Um... But it's it's throughout his filmography that he's obsessed with the stories and storytellers. It's a very literary film. Yeah. It is, of course, based on a book. Um, so it carries that over really, really well. Idris Elba is fantastic. Uh, Tilda Swinton. Uh, Tilda Swinton is fantastic. Their chemistry is really good. And I kind of differ from Lawson on it. The more I think about the ending, the yeah. more it works for me. The second time we watched it, it, it landed. When I watched it with my parents, the ending landed for me. Because then I realized, this is just another extrapolation on a story about stories. He's telling you that their love wasn't a real thing. She wished that she could be loved by the genie, by the djinn, and that was hurting it. It was a story that was going on. It was a story going on for too long that was crumbling and falling apart by the end. There's a line from Sandman, uh, the not the book, the the show that really stuck with me. It's every story ever told ends with ends with death, and it just made me think about that. And it's okay to let a story go, hmm. and by the end, the characters, the main character, isn't willing to let it go until she realizes how harmful it's being to the story itself, which is represented by the gen. Yeah, I'll, I'll bit- just say it right now. Um, it is on my honorable mentions list. Oh, absolutely. It's, it yep. did come close. But yeah, like you mentioned, the ending really was a problem for me. I don't think that Tilda Return Swinton... Of the, Return of the King Syndrome. Yeah, I don't think that Tilda Swinton or the Jinn should ever have left the hotel uh, the hotel room. I think yep. that it all should have stayed there um, with the flashbacks, the Arabian Nights style being the way to do it. But like, like you said, it seems to have connected with you more on a rewatch. So it will be interesting to see... Mm. If that is the same for me, whether 
coming back to it when I get to it. We'll see in about 30 years. Not 30 <laughs> years for movies, John. Keep up. Come on. It's. I also like it's a, a uh, much less five movies. movies. Ten at least. Mm. Not ten. I also probably like how, five. I also like how Pepper throughout the movie are just like very creative, nasty little guys. Like yeah. in the Queen of Sheba sequence, there's like these octopus fellas just just chilling on the stairs, oh, yeah, just the hanging out. The design of the creatures in that movie is incredible. When he's in the, the tunnel chasing after that the, young girl and that the, the iblis spider creature. Yeah, that spider creature just pops out of a dude's neck hole. I and didn't it's see like, that shit coming. You are not wanted here, Jin. Is it's just like great. It's it's. I really loved it. I had a great time with it, and it looks very good too. Yeah. I I'm a I'm a simple man, <laughs> and I don't know. I a I simple just man love... picking an art film. Is <laughs> best of 2022. Yeah, but you know, it's a story about love. How we love the stories that mean things to us, and how we how make up s- stories how... for ourselves. How we are stories at the end of the day. All right, right on the dot there. Um, so Eugene, what is your number nine for the? My number nine is one that might surprise people, but if you know me, it's not that much of a surprise. In fact, if this year was st- less strong as it was, uh, this would be a little higher up. This is Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. This movie appealed to me. Just everything about it, the Sam Raimi of it, the Danny Elfman of it, the fact that it's, it's the nastiest Marvel film that I think there has been since maybe Civil War or Winter Soldier, the fact that it is so filled with horror imagery. Zombie Doctor Strange is just brilliant. The fact that these spirits of the underworld, or whatever the hell they are, sound like deadites the fact the camera positioning the cinematographic choices the color scheme the directions the story goes in is everything that i love in both sam raimi films and marvel films superhero media patrick stewart shows up as charles xavier a member of the illuminati john krasinski as mr fantastic i still you know I'm holding out hope for a yeah. piece to Ian McKellen return. Oh, at some Patrick point. Stewart has been hinting towards it, but he might just be yeah. st- trying to stir the pot. Who yeah. knows? He do plays not, with Lawson's heart constantly. Do not mess with me, piece to. He will come down on you like the thunder of a thousand storms. No, no. he'll just be really uh, sad. But, but that way. whole scene where uh, Scarlet Witch executes the when, when Scarlet Witch executes Jesus. the Illuminati is brutal. What she does to Black Bolt is is just a smidge less brutal than that ABC television show for what it does to the Inhumans. <laughs> I mean, good lord. The fact that she traps this scream in his mouth and his head collapses in on itself is what something I did not expect. Uh, I love the Danny Elfman score here. I think he uses the Michael Giacchino leitmotif just enough there's enough of the essence of it there's enough of the tone of it that it is tone and essence doesn't do it for me though i don't think i like it when i'm not that musically inclined i think there's enough but tonal and chromatic consistency between two both leitmotifs that it acts as its own theme for the film this multiverse of madness 
Yeah, I'm 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 just I would have liked it if the theme itself was brought yeah. over and more apparently. The theme that Elfman gives to Wonder Maximov is like a Del Toro lullaby. It is mm. tragic but beautiful and completely fitting with her character and the way it's turned from gentle and melancholic to sinister and full of screeching violins and blaring horns is also really well done and you get a lot of really good cumberbatch here Hmm. he has to do a scene opposite the worst version of dr strange a completely beaten down and disturbed man where we get hints at strange's past with his sister donna which just go to expand his character in a single scene in a fantastic way that colors his entire character with so much more tragedy. And that music fight between Bach and Beethoven is also a great scene for me. As I said, this movie just had so much that appealed to me specifically. and It had good energy. It was the exa- exact movie that I wanted. So many practical sets, but so much imagination and quality for a lot of the CG elements uh, led to this being really a movie that impressed and appealed to me. My favorite MCU film. All right. My number nine is a movie that I also think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to be tabling. Uh, It is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. And yep, I'm seeing the affirmative on that. So (laughs) why don't we move on to you then, Harley? What is your number eight? Something I anticipate we're going to be tabling, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Nope. No? Nope. Go for it. Surprisingly, dude, there were like 15 movies that were on the bubble. (laughs) Okay, so... um, Not even on my honorable mention. Really? Wow. Uh, And you really dug it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is the second Pinocchio... Well, third Pinocchio I watched this year. Uh, the first being the Robert Zemeckis version, the second being the original animation, the third being this. A very Pinocchio-heavy year, you could say. Um, but of course, Guillermo del Toro brings his own energy to the telling. It is set in fascist Italy. It is much more about horror, about the outcast. It's Guillermo del Toro. He, he tells stories about outcasts. About monsters. Or what are seemingly monsters. Exactly. And I like my anti-fascist Pinocchio film. Yeah. It it just, it goes a long way for me. It's also such great stop motion. Yeah. I, it's so very impressive that this is a format that takes so, so very long to accomplish. It's deeply frustrating to be a part of, but you could tell there was love in everything here. I love my demon puppet Pinocchio here. Yeah, yeah, the fact they actually call him such. Yeah, like they they don't <laughs> they don't shy away from the fact that it is like a creepy, creepy visual. If you were actually to imagine what a, a wooden boy behaving like a real creature and, would be, in, and like as in you real put life. it, uh, it it makes sense that Pinocchio's first appearance is so nightmarish. As you put it earlier in the year when you talked about it, Geppetto makes him in an act of desperate violence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's what I I really do like, that that is the way they, they pitch that creation scene. It's sort of this drunk Geppetto making a, <laughs> making a wooden copy of his dead son out of the tree that grew above his child's grave. <laughs> like, yeah. 
it is that it's an act of died in a it's an act of bombing. grief, not an act of creation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's so good. I love the ending. I love all the stuff with the, the that really sick, disturbed fish, their version of Monstro, the, <laughs> the toadfish. Toad yeah. <laughs> um I think that was very, very well done. I love all the stuff with like Volpe and Spatatura. I think I also got to see uh Pinocchio mock teeny tiny teeny tiny puppet Benito Mussolini. <laughs> yeah. Uh and and that's fantastic. The version of Pleasure Island. I was gonna do. say, yes. Like, <laughs> I mean come on. Reimagining Pleasure Island, the concept of Pleasure Island into this sort of like Hitler youth esque summer camp boarding it's school just, thing. It's just brilliant. Yeah, it's great. Like the like the way that just in general, the way that Guillermo del Toro has taken this story, relocated it into pre war Mussolini Italy, and then sort of turned it into this story about fascism. And the fact that when people go to Pleasure Island in every version, every version of the Pinocchio story, they turn to donkeys when they leave. Like, yeah, it's such a smart transportation story. It's just, it's all so brilliant, but that ending, the the, the gentle way that they've done this with uh, and eventually Geppetto left. And one day, Pinocchio and Spatatura found me still lying on the windowsill. The fact that Jiminy Cricket is narrating this thing and ends up being a corpse inside of Pinocchio's heart (laughs) at the end is, like, so hardcore, like, fucked up. It's so Del Toro. But, like, every time Pinocchio dies and he goes to, like, this weird (laughs) Platform 9 three-quarters way station in the afterlife to talk to, like this sort of Grim Reaper demon thing. Like, it's such a weird, weird take on this story, and that's why I love it. Yeah. It's so good. It's it's perhaps my favourite version of Pinocchio. You know me, I loved the Ven- Zemeckis version, don't get me wrong, but this just had more of its own. It had more behind and- it, it had more themes, it had a story that needs to be told. As Harley said, anti-fascist Pinocchio. After all of the people in his life die... I want this guy to wander the world just punching Nazis. I think that would be great. Everyone's favorite demon puppet was in the bunker. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And with that. You crawl through the air vents uh, and put the gun in Hitler's mouth. And with that, we've we've hit the five minute Yep. Ewan McGregor, David Bradley, Gregory Mann. Just outstanding performances. Also, Kate Blanchett became a monkey. Mm. Yep. Could have been a better. Um, musical in terms of the song. I don't think the songs yeah, the, worked as the, well as they wanted them to. The but... Chell Papa just became grating yeah. over time. Alright, what about you, John? What is your number eight? My number eight, I don't know if this is going to be higher on Harley's, but it's Bullet Train. Not it's on your not list at all. on yours. Wow, okay. Um, I had a tough time, man. <laughs> do you want to say your piece on this before I say my piece, Lawson? Yeah, I, I just think this is a really fun movie. It is such so aesthetically geared to me Mm -hmm. i think that you know there are some really good scenes in cinema this year and one of them is hiroyuki sonata having a sword fight with michael shannon set to a japanese language version of need i need a hero like (laughs) the way that it plays with structure the way that it zips around the the sense of humor the way that they make such spectacular action out of this this enclosed space that is like 
all in the train until suddenly it isn't. Like, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's a really, and, really fun movie. That's and like, even more the energy so, like, and the color of it is just so good. To me. They stay in the train for so much of the film, even when it is hurtling through the air like a ballistic missile. They're still trapped in the train, and that's great. This oh is Tarantino on crack. I love the introduction of the wolf. Mm. Yeah, that entire... Oh, the introduction of the wolf is so, so good. And it's, it's like so a, funny. It's, like when... a, it's so dramatic. It's like a telenovela. It's just... It's so overdone. And how quickly and the he wolf dies. And eats shit. How quickly he eats shit is just in keeping with the sense of humor from this movie. I love all the, the reason... stuff, too, with the Thomas the Tank Engine. Yes. And yes. Brian Tyree Henry, like, running his life, basically, by the morals taught to him by... Watching You're Thomas a diesel, the Tank mate. Engine. You're exactly. A diesel. That his whole thing is he's got to find the mastermind. He's got to find who the diesel is because he ascribes yeah. personalities of Thomas the Tank Engine engines to everyone he meets. And Diesel <laughs> yeah. is clearly the villain. Yeah. The reason yeah, why it's... this movie is my number eight pick is two letters, two two uh, words: Tangerine Lemon. The mm. discussions, the dialogue between these two is just fantastic. If you mention Thomas the Tank Engine again, I'll stab you in the fucking head. Is uh, something I never expected from this movie, but I love the relationship between these two. The script yeah. is smart as a whip. I love the action sequences. Hiroyuki Sonata in a sword fight with anyone? It's just dope as hell. But if you set it to that song, and if you have Michael Shannon dressed like an Oni demon for some reason calling himself the White Death, speaking in a Russian accent, in the sword fight at, as the person he's fighting? Hmm. Spectacular. Brilliant. This it, was a bubble film for me. Yeah, and <laughs> I everything about the style of this just appealed to me so much. It's, as I said, Tarantino on crack, and that is fantastic. All right, then. I'm pretty sure this will be a, a time where I'm finally a- able to talk about a movie on my list. Maybe. Without delaying it till later, because I'm pretty sure you guys haven't seen it, uh, unless it is the movie that you watched but haven't talked about yet. It's Triangle of Sadness. No. Uh, I thought that this was just a really, really nasty, pitch-black satire of rich people, of current class issues of basically everything. I mean, it does rope in pretty much every hot button topic by the end of its uh, by the end of its runtime. It's a really, really strong movie. It's impeccably well written. Although I do think people will push back a little on the tone, um, the, the slow burn in, that some of it has. It also has what is competing with one other movie. Uh, I'll talk about it later on for the best scene of the year, best scene or sequence of the year, which is this cruise ship, basically, that all of these rich folk are on just completely going down because it, it everything that could go wrong does go wrong. There's this big storm. Everyone is, like, eating these, like, 
oysters and things for dinner during the storm, which just makes everyone so sick. Oh, uh, and, no! Uh, like, everything <laughs> just goes crazy. The ship starts going rocking and falling apart. People are throwing up. The sewerage starts, like, breaking and starts flooding through the hallways. And Ew. people are just, like, vomiting into the toilets and everything. Meanwhile, the captain, Woody Harrelson, <laughs> and this drunk Russian billionaire have gotten into this massive argument where the Russian billionaire is like a... A, a kind of fascist, like ultra capitalist, and Woody Harrelson is uh, a, this hardcore Bernie Sanders style socialist, and they've gotten drunk together and are just like screaming extremist <laughs> politics over the intercom at each other, <laughs> while the entire ship gets like flooded with shit and vomit, like the the regular people and the rich people are like, like it's there's no better a example of. An allegory for current political discourse than that. <laughs> like it's like uh, that and bodies, bodies, bodies in terms of like capturing the zeitgeist it, of a it moment. Really is uh, such a spectacular movie and and a movie that I really enjoyed. Although it, you have to be on its wavelength. The person I saw yeah. it with did not like it at all. Uh, and I will uh, admit that the the last third of it there are sort of three distinct structures three distinct acts to the story and the cruise ship marks the end of the second act and um you <laughs> sort you of end, like 2012 yeah well you end up with <laughs> you end up with this sort of gilligan's island sort of scenario with <laughs> a handful of rich people and a handful of of the workers uh and I like the idea. I think it's got a lot of interesting elements to it, but I do think it goes on just a tad too long there in the end. Um, but it is a movie that I think has a lot to say, says it well, and like I said, it just has some spectacular ideas that uh, really appealed to me uh, and um, made me really interested in seeing this director's work. I believe it's Ruben Ostland. Uh, his next movie is another satire uh, about... <laughs> A plane where the in-flight entertainment goes out halfway through and how people oh, deal God. with that. So <laughs> I think that's a pretty pretty decent idea for satire. Uh, anyways, and if it goes as crazy as Triangle of Sadness did, I'll be, I'll be very pleased. All right, Harley, you're number seven. Uh, speaking of shit, vomit, the misery of the world, and current political discourse, my seventh favorite movie of the year is Mad God. Hiya! <laughs> Higher for me. All right then, Harley. Uh, Jean, sorry. Uh, what is your number seven? One of two movies to scare the shit out of me this year. I'm talking about Barbarian, bitch. Higher. Knew it. Um, I knew it. Yes, higher. So I suppose it comes back to me then. Uh, this is another one that I am pretty sure that I'm going to be able to talk about. It's another sort of arty film. It's Tar. Uh, it's a movie that I wasn't expecting to like as, as much as I was. I was expecting to like it, but there was a sort of austerity to a lot of the stuff I was seeing in the trailers and the discourse about it that made me not quite sure how much I was going to connect with it. But I really did, and that's really down to not only the fantastic writing and direction by Todd Field, but the... Uh, the performance by Kate Blanchett, which is truly like just a powerhouse, phenomenal, ferocious performance of this uh, person, this privileged person who starts to see her life falling apart because of her own actions and her own choices. Um, it is a really fantastic movie about current culture, about not about 
so-called cancel culture, as you'd put it, but really about our current sort of reckoning with powerful people behaving badly, I suppose. And it's running up against all of this stuff with gender. Obviously, Kate Blanchett is a female. Uh, she's playing a, a gay character, so that sort of runs up against it there. And there is just this sort of like complexity to all of that stuff that the thing that really starts to bring her down, not the only thing that ends up doing it, but the thing that precipitates it is this sort of confrontation she has in a class that she's teaching on composing and on classical music, where she really challenges this kid on their perspective on um, whether you can separate the art from the artist. And she goes in like way harder than she should have. And, and that mm -hmm. ends up being a real sort of problem. And But even then, the movie is good about not making her a cartoon character, you know? She's not Harvey Weinstein, even though she does some Harvey Weinstein-style sort of manipulations of people for awful things. Um, she is a character that is not grotesque overtly. She becomes mm. grotesque once you see the parts of it stripped away. But even then, there's a sort of understanding of her as this human being who is incredibly fallible and there's just a way more impact there and i think that todd field puts in a lot of these like weird sort of esoteric touches that sort of there is there is the very slightest hint of horror ideas to this it's not a horror movie and it never goes in that direction but you know she, she wakes up in the middle of the night uh to this ticking sound and she goes out in the middle of her apartment and the metronome is going um mm. and no one she didn't set it up so that's an idea so, that's like and it's a Macbeth shit yeah it's like exactly it's the sort of the telltale heart kind of thing um it's not an overtly supernatural thing it's never explained but it is the idea of this woman's fracturing perspective and fracturing life being literalized within the story in a very artistic fashion uh, one of my favorite things about the movie that i've seen happen is uh lydia tar is <laughs> A Twitter character? It, yes, because she works so spectacularly well as this sort of, like, bullshitting, like, artiste sort of snob. I, um, I kept up on all the Lydia Tarr tweets about the Oscars. It was so good. Yeah. And that's it. Like, like it comes into some <laughs> of the sort of artistic flourishes that this movie does as well. It's a movie that some people are going to reject again because of its pace, but also because of some of the... In undeniably indulgent things that it does. It starts with a 10-minute sequence, which is Lydia Tarr being interviewed on stage by someone from The New Yorker, like a real-life New Yorker journalist playing himself, <laughs> interviewing her on stage. And it's literally just a dialogue scene where she explains her philosophy about um, composition and conducting of classical music for 10 minutes. Like, And, and it's, what it it's part of how it draws you into the character because she's this very articulate, very well-spoken, passionate woman, and it lets you kind of like her and really find her magnetic before it starts to strip back the layers of her and reveal the rot underneath. And the way mm. that it ends, too, is, is so brilliant. It's such... It, it has perhaps the greatest ending of a movie of... Uh, 2022 it builds up to it it's the best funniest joke that this movie has and there is some dark comedy to it but the fact that she spends so much time after her life falls apart trying to get another job trying to get somewhere that will uh 
you know, take her on again. You know, she's conducting the Berlin Symphony Orchestra and now she's left with nothing. And and finally she does get a job in what you, you learn is sort of this, you get the impression is not very prestigious at all. She's got to go to, uh, I think, Korea it ends, it ends up being. And you're sort of like getting the impression, like she's putting, being put up in this hotel that's not nearly to her usual standards. And then finally at the end... Um, she goes in and she starts playing this in front of this gigantic audience this um symphony this in front of with this orchestra and on the screen behind her all of this science fiction imagery starts to play and it pulls back and it reveals she's at a cosplay convention for a online video game and all of these oh. uh cosplaying gamers stand up in, put their hands on their hearts as the the main theme of their favorite video game plays, and it cuts to black. Like it's the greatest, like nastiest little twist of the knife, especially for this character too. Like it's such a gorgeous ending, and it led to some great Lydia fake Lydia Tar tweets that like that's like, um, stop asking me if I'm at the Game Awards, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I really dug it. Uh, anyways, Harley, your number six. So it is the second movie we watched this week. It is the Smash Sensation coming all the way from India, Triple R. Interesting. I've heard a lot about this, but... Oh, I'd... it's great. Yeah. Is it on your list, Sean? No. Bubble? Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Just this morning when I woke <laughs> up, I was like, Jesus... I have to think, which one did I like, this or Matilda? Christ, Christ, Jesus Christ. Uh, so, uh, Triple R, in brackets, Rise, Raw, Revolt, is the fictitious story about two legendary Indian revolutionaries and their journey away from home before they started fighting for their country in the 1920s. Uh, the two historical figures are Commodore Beam and, I just saw a second, uh, Alui Sitrama Sitarama Raju. And John <laughs> say a short piece about it. Yeah, this is mental. This is <laughs> a fantastic story about romance, about standing up for your people, about anti colonialism, and it's also one of the best action movies of the year. Easily. Hundred <clears throat> percent. The action is so clear, so well choreographed. This is bullet train levels of stuff. This is Kingsman level choreography, and it's brilliant. The uh, musical numbers are also absolutely wild. That Imagine, if you will, Lawson, that scene in the Rocky franchise where him and Apollo Creed are running through the surf. Bold of you to assume I've ever seen a movie in the Rocky franchise. Anyway, there's this whole montage <laughs> thing where... Uh, Ram and Beam are becoming best buds, like best bros, and they're like doing it's all these good fun four minute activities. Montage for right. a song. Explain to me, like this is this Nanu Nanu that you're referring to? Natu Natu. Natu Natu. I'm not actually. I don't think it's that one. Right. No. Because I've heard so much about this song for like the last six months, and then it finally like won best original song at the Oscars, and I'm just like, tell me why this song no, is no, so no. good. That's the dance sequence. Okay. 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 So, um, this is a movie that exemplifies cinema. <laughs> and I will explain to you why. Uh, a man fights a tiger, and it is badass. A man lifts up a 
motorbike over his head and swings it around as a weapon. Uh, and this man is ostensibly human. Uh, we also get some of the best non-anime fight scenes ever put to film. It's not Bullet Train. It's not Kingsman. It is a step above. It is bug nuts. But it is all centered by the performative performances of N.T. Ramarel Jr. and Ram Sharan. And they have this easy chemistry as as these individual revolutionaries who, safe to say, never actually met each other in real life. Uh, but these, but the characters are like, uh, they are positioned as like fire and water, and it's this like three and a bit hour saga of like the friendship being built and the friendship breaking down through the betrayals. Uh, because uh, uh Raju is a British soldier. Uh, in the colonial police force, and he has his own purposes for being there, but it's like, oh, it's hard to explain. I have two movies on my list for best films of 2022 that have the world's best piggyback in them, <laughs> and it, it's weird that it happened twice. Yeah, it is. And it is perhaps that scene with the piggyback in this movie is perhaps the craziest fight scene I've ever seen. Because a lot of these things should not be accomplishable by human bodies, but they've managed it. They've also found two actors who can really, really throw down and dance. They are incredible. It's like some... Uh, a lot of those dance scenes in uh, Dancing in the Rain... Singing uh, in the Rain. Singing in the Rain, sorry. Uh, that film, it's like some Clark Gable shit. It's just... A fantastic movie. I was 100% sucked in from the top. Uh, it is extravagant. It is so very indulgent in itself. And I just had a very, very great time with it. It is so much fun. And it is both so straightforward and, you know, pretty complex on the character side of things. Because you could see it playing out in this very heightened reality. I... I just had a great time with it. It's just a, a shitload of fun. All right. John, you're number six. Yeah, I I just want to say I really liked Triple R, but I feel like it still has to germinate for a moment for, before it gets onto a list like this. My number seven, you mean? Six. Oh, six. Six. Uh, I, don't, I think this might actually be higher on your list. It's X. Yes, higher on mine. Higher, yeah, I thought so. Uh, in that case, we move on to my own number six, which I'm not sure. Could be higher, could make no appearance at all. Uh, it was from the very start of the year. It's Cyrano. Cyrano, high up. up. High up. High all up. right. We're back to you then, Harley. Your number five. My number five is predictably the Batman. I was actually wondering if it would be <laughs> your number one, but... No, uh... In any other I, year, it might have made it on my list. Again, um, bubble. I Batman's my favorite superhero from the get-go. That opening scene, not the opening scene with Riddler, even though that was a fantastic sequence. The when he's doing the monologue, uh, like "I am the night, I am vengeance," all that shit. We're like panning over the city. That's all just gold tier, god standard Batman stuff. Uh, I get that Lawson wasn't terribly hot on the mobster angle of it, but I liked it a lot. I love everything they did with the Penguin. Colin Farrell fully transformed into, like, another guy. 
to play Penguin. Um, was that necessary? Probably not. Paul Giamatti is right there. Like, seriously, and, and he's no longer with us, but it really was Colin Farrell playing James Gandolfini playing yeah. the Penguin. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I love everything that Colin Farrell did. I really do like what Robert Pattinson is doing. He spent a lot of time in the Batsuit, not a lot of time out of it, but I liked all the stuff he was doing. It was not as explosive as many would have liked, but when he was in the Batsuit, he fully owned the space. He had a fun chemistry with Jeffrey Wright as Detective Gordon, and they seem to have an easy chemistry as well. I can't wait to see what happens moving forward with that. I love what Zoe Kravitz did, it, Kravitz did as... Catwoman, John Turturro as Carmine Falcone, and the really disturbing enjoyment the character seems to get from strangling people to death. Um, but Paul Dano as the Riddler. Um, not only did we get him in that full Zodiac gear, breathing heavy and stuff, we also got him, the two scenes that really stand out to me for his Riddler is uh, the scene when he's in, when he's locked up, and the interview with the Batman, uh, just the sounds that he makes when he realizes that Batman doesn't like him. Yeah. <laughs> it's just deranged. But I also love, like, his his Twitch stream to his, like, followers on the internet. Like, his his fans on Reddit or whatever. I got chills the moment uh, that scene started. Because, like, oh, no. It's like, he has 50... He has, like, 50-ish people following him. That's not that many. And now is where you come in. Oh, 50 is more than enough. <laughs> 50 is too many. I just love the part where he just is like, oh, hey, everyone, um, <laughs> like and subscribe, that kind of shit. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Reeves kind of knows what he's doing with this guy. I think Riddler is so fascinating here. I love his theme here by mm, Chiquino. The Ave Maria-esque yeah. sort of thing. I love the music. Let's talk about the music. Michael Giacchino crushed it. Yeah, I love the Batman theme, not only the dun, 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 dun stuff, but how that, the Bruce Wayne theme, that big sweeping instrumental emotional stuff that digs at the heart of the pain and the heroism. I I love how the music is interconnected with that moment when he's, he's cut the wire, he's fallen into the water, and he's helping save people from the rubble and they're all following him out he's got this flare that he's lit that to me very poignant poignantly is batman yeah he, he isn't the knight he is the lit candle that's there to guide you out of the darkness like the, the a lit candle is a symbolism throughout batman's lore he swore upon a lit candle to protect people from suffering the same violence that he Lost his parents in. Uh, Robin, the first Robin, sweared his allegiance to the war on crime with the same candle. It's this motif that you see with the flare. I just think it was really great. I'm excited for Penguin. I'm excited for the Batman part two. I'm excited for all the Matt Reeves stuff. Keep this stuff like grounded, but also fun and weird. I know, yeah, I think there's a lot of really interesting potential to go Two, I really hope that the next one is the Dark Knight to this one's Batman Begins. Mm. I just think that they need to commit more to consequences. They can't just have the darkness yeah. for as an aesthetic. But, like, the thing that really sort of once... I like this movie a lot, but once this ha 
once this scene happened, I disconnected a little bit and never entirely got me back. It was the fact that they didn't kill off Alfred um, with mm. that explosion. It was such a opportunity, a golden opportunity to mark this out as like a different kind of Batman story that was actually going to go there in the way that they'd been promising for so long that they would. And for them to sort of backtrack on not only that, but then all of the stuff with Thomas Wayne so heavily to sort of reinforce the status quo. Yeah, it that was... That's the, fair. I want them... I really hope in the next... Because it's a trilogy, they've said. I really want them to commit to consequences, I think, is what I'm yeah, looking for. Yeah, that's, that's completely fair. It also... Movie looks damn good. Mm. It it has a very solid visual style. Oh yeah, and I like that the Batmobile's a car again, <laughs> not a tank. Uh all right, Stan, Jean, your number five. Just give me one second. My number five. I don't know if it's going to end up on anyone else's list, but it really impressed me. Pearl. Nope. Nope. I really enjoyed this. I know that it hasn't been long since we saw it, but the more and more I think about it. I just really enjoy what it's doing. It is very much sort of the aliens to X's alien in the sense that it is that's a weird comparison. A little wilder. It's stranger. It is a little bit more classic movie, and that's what I like about Pearl. I love that it's this classic Hollywood story, but it's about Pearl. She's insane, completely insane, and Watching scenes back from X after seeing Pearl in order to, you know, construct our best of lists has been really interesting to see that those through lines with the characterization. But John, she's not crazy. She's a star. Yes. I love that scene where she's at the audition. The fact that it turns into (laughs) that sort of little dance number about the war. I love that. I love that how big portion she, of the credits breaks down how a big portion of the credits is just her staring and smiling like a complete nut it's it's like the Mia way Goth that was she, just desperately thinking ty can we cut can we cut please eight, ty that eight or so minute monologue <laughs> where she is just going off is excellent acting for mia goth and yeah, I just think back to this movie and everything about it is working perfectly in concert. The score by Tyler Bates and his co-composer is so classic Hollywood, mm. but it is corrupted beautifully with all of the horrific things that Pearl is doing. The fact that there is a fire stunt in a movie that I did not expect and how quickly she lights up just is... Those Just clothes are made of hemp. Me. Like, that shit, that shit burns real fast. Yeah, I... Everything about this movie, I just dug. How it yeah. is exploring sort of the earlier years of the star system in Hollywood. How there was a very specific thing that people were looking for in their movie stars. Yeah. The way that it's What's showing... What's not even a movie star, like, a, a dance troupe? I, I think what they're talking about is movie stars. And I found that very interesting. I liked it a little bit more than X, but honestly, those two movies could switch places and it would make utter sense. I was halfway considering trying to convince you guys to let me have them both be at the same place on my <laughs> list, but I knew Lawson could not abide it. 
He would be looking well, at me the same way Pearl looked I at the audience. Good, with Fear Street, there was a good argument yeah. for that. With, I think what, what would have really tripped you up there, Jean, is the fact that even though I agree with you that they complement each other really specifically, they're incredibly different in terms of yeah. tone yeah, and that, pace. That's the and... thing that I was coming up against, where I was yeah. like, I don't think... I think I could make the argument in terms of how close the movies are. They are prequel and mm. original film. But tonally and visually, they are so different. And yeah. I've figured that they have to be their own, you know, bits on the list. So I do see where you're coming from. I'm, I'm kind of with Lawson on this one. I liked X a lot more. Mm. Sure. But as I said, they could have swapped places very yeah. easily. And, and it might in the, in the you know... The aesthetics this. of both films are just incredible. The Excited for Maxine. I am super excited for Maxine. Ty West has just such a great way of capturing the visual essence of a time. And what he's done here is capture these 40s and early 50s films like East of Eden, like Rebel mm. Without a Cause, and has just nailed that sort of color scheme how matte the colors are the vibe i got most was uh actually wizard of oz yeah with the farm yeah, girl stuff that yeah that too but i couldn't get like, east of eden wise. out of my mind i saw a well, lot east of, of Eden's comparisons great, so. between <laughs> that dude who cracks his skull into that train window and just sort of cack- starts cackling <laughs> Yes, I just remembered that. Yeah, I I, I saw a lot of, of comparisons there, movie. but yeah, the Wizard <laughs> of Oz of it goes to the so- goes to the score too. The fact that mm. she's a yeah. farm it goes girl goes to the scarecrow. Goes to the <laughs> scarecrow, and that scarecrow, my f- my friends, was not pleased with anything that was happening. He was not a consenting. <laughs> The, the farmer pops up couple. and sees the, the farmer pops around to check on the scarecrow. He says, like, "Sounds like what the hell happened to you?" He's just sitting the there with a cigarette. Just having a cigarette. <sighs> she ruined me. <laughs> but yeah, I I thought Pearl was great. I think that character, both her in this film and her as an older woman, are just incredible horror villains. And right. Pearl was just one of the most entertaining times i've had over the past year and three four months almost yeah. but i thoroughly it's enjoyed. one of the ones we had to wait for i thoroughly enjoyed pearl and i would be excited to watch them one back after back the back, other yeah. back to back oh yeah because that feels like a much more cohesive experience that way yeah but yeah great just great my number five might be higher. Um, it comes down to whether it's higher on Harley's list or not, because Jean has already said it. It's Barbarian. Not on your list at all, Harley. Wow. No. Bubble! Okay. Um, I've got like 31 movies that could dude, have been on the bubble. We had such a strong horror year. Not everything was going to make it. Jean, well, why don't you say a little bit about Barbarian then, since it was your number seven. seven. I love a lot of what this movie is doing with its discussions of red flags. How she goes to this house, it's dark, and just like in Malignant, one of my favorite movies from last year, you can't see anything to the sides of this house. We're just being shown this house in the middle of nothing, and it seems like a light in the darkness. 
and all of the discussion that she's having with that the main actress is having with uh Bale Skarsgård is so full of these moments where he insists on things and she just sort of lets it go but could be precursors to really really bad shit and then when daytime comes you see the houses around and it is just the utter desolation of Detroit suburbia it 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 has so many of these things and then that moment in the tunnel where the mom which is what i'm going to call the person in this the comes, titular barbarian comes screaming out of nothing tall lanky running down a tunnel naked john that's like a really important part of that description sorry naked naked as well <laughs> naked and breaks no wait and crushes Bill Skarsgård against the wall is... Uh, holy shit. Holy shit is sort of the only words I can have for that. And then everything with Justin yeah. Long after that well, further that is reinforces the great thing. all of it. That is the great thing about the movie, is that it completely changes tack at least twice. Like, there are three yeah. distinct yeah. portions of this movie, much it the is. same way that Triangle of Sadness has three distinct portions. This does too, except unlike Triangle of Sadness... Each switch is a total surprise, and and that is a really great thing. I really enjoy that opening stretch with uh with I forget the main actress's name, but her and, and Bill Skarsgård. Tessa Thompson. Yes. No, that, not Tessa. No, no, yeah, Tessa Thompson. You're no, right. No, it's not. Georgina Campbell. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. She's that's playing right. Tess. That's why we went to Tessa Thompson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair um, enough. Yeah, there, there it is. But uh, she and Bill Skarsgård. That, that's such a great like weird little tete a tete where he could be a creep, but he could also just be, like, this really awkward, sweet, genuine guy. And yeah. you could go either way, because it's Bill Skarsgård. And, He's played both. Yeah, the and, entire time throughout that sequence, I'm like, fuck, Norman Bates, Norman Bates, Norman Bates. And all of that stuff in the tunnel, I think, is great. It's really, really scary. Uh, it has some great scary shots, like just the pitch black of that tunnel. Um, obviously, all of the stuff with Richard Brake when he enters into the the story later on. Uh, I think that it is like that shot of the the mum, as you put it, uh, John, sort of like retreating back into the darkness of the window after she sort of makes her escape. Um, and then, like the way that they tie Justin Long as this sort of guy accused of sexual assault into the overall sort of themes about women and about, as you put it, Jean, red flags, I think is really smartly done. Um, His character just never gets it. Yeah. Even when you think he does, he he hasn't. And that leads to my favourite shot of the entire movie, which is the shot of of the mother, like, sailing over the water. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love how that homeless guy is like, ah, she never comes here. Perfectly safe. Oh, yeah, bush. And he oh, gets I have his to legs say, like, off. Two things. One, uh, people have connected the title Barbarian. The the street is like Barber Barbary street? street. Barbary Street. So yeah. technically, by use of language, one that lives and has a society in Barbary Street yeah. is a barbarian. But then it's also Richard Brake as the serial killer whose house it is, yeah. And it's and also, also Justin these... Long. Yeah, and Barbara, Justin exactly. Long as a person who is accused, rightfully so, we find out yeah. of sexual of misconduct in like when we find out in like the most sort of cold-blooded casual way yeah also yeah 
Because there's uh, no self-awareness uh, to it. And the way I... that he tries to be like, I realized my mistake. I will grow from this. And he throws Tess off the water yeah, tower. Yeah, immediately pivots the, back to his original spot. When, um, also, like, when it becomes inconvenient for him. The moment you see the, the stained mattress and that little room with the blood and the camera and everything, that's when you dip. That's when you ditch. That's, that's right? when I would be saying to Tess, look, been fun getting to know you, but I'm leaving. You like, should leave too. You call the cops the moment you see that. You don't venture into the dark tunnel. What are you, mad? Let, let the police go into the tunnel. All right, Harley, you're number four. Bye. Number four is a movie that really hit me on a personal level. The menu. Higher uh, on mine. Higher. Higher. All right. Understandable. Jean, then, what is your number four? Well, it's kind of hard to sum it up because I am talking about everything everywhere all at once. Higher. higher. No, mm-hmm. actually, no, it's it's my number four as well. But wow. it is higher. higher on Harley's. Um. <laughs> So I think that that brings me back to me again, doesn't it? Yep. But well, but my number four is everything, everywhere, all at once. So we go back to Harley for his <laughs> number three. Damn it! We've done this again. What is your number three, Harley? Glass Onion. Mine. That was Fire. my number nine. Is it on yours at all, John? Didn't or... make the cut. I know. Weird. I loved it though. You gotta, you gotta know. I love me a murder mystery film. You gotta know. I was and actually. This con- is the sequel to Knives Out. You've been watching a lot of moments from Death on the Nile, and I was like, "Is that going to be on the list?" Bubble. Bubble. Wow. Bubble. But Glass Onion makes more sense. Yeah, Glass Onion is a better film. Uh, I I love everything Ryan Johnson Ryan Johnson is doing with these Knives Out films. They are such a great showcase for the actors who just like want to pop in and have some fun. Have some fun murder mystery shenanigans, but but not as serious as what Kenneth Branagh is doing with the pro row stuff. Like I love every performance here. Benoit Blanc is one of the greatest fictional creations of this decade. I I I love the reveal. Miles Braun is an idiot. It's so dumb. It's it's so Inbreviate. dumb. It's no, like no, it's just dumb. Like everything is summed up by Inbreviate. That's not a word. <laughs> it is um, a really well-structured film where you're sort of you're waiting for so long for the mystery to start, mm. but you don't realise until later on that it has started. And you also sense, spend so much time of like the first half, basically, thinking, I don't know, they're making Benoit Blanc seem like kind of a kind of a yokel in this. And then but the switch no. happens, yeah. It's a very clever I, I, sort of playing with structure in, in a similar way, but not not simply a repeat of what the mm. first Knives Out did. It's an expansion. And it plays of... you honest. Mm. It plays honest. Mm. Like the reveal of the twins. It's like the whole movie is a discussion of like, what is a dumb mystery? What are the dumb solutions to a mystery? Of course, Miles Braun is a killer. Of course he is. He's the host. He's the arrogant guy. Yeah. Like, he does the stupid thing. Haunting of Hill House. It's like, always the host. He does the stupid thing. Of course, the solution is twins. Yeah. Of course it is. I I was convinced. The movie convinced me. Don't you understand? Me. It convinced me that Miles Braun was some, yes, an idiot, but smarter than that. No, but he's, evidently... He's just no. not. 
He's not smarter than that. He's got the Mona Lisa behind glass in a place fueled by something so explosive. Merely contact with any kind of physical pressure will make it explode into flames. I just... I, I love the movie. I love everything about it. Daniel Craig can keep playing Benoit Blanc for as long as he wants. I don't care. Rest of his life. Rest of his life if he wants to. And I'm sure he has a great amount of fun doing it. They have so many actors they can bring on for future projects. And the other thing is, Benoit Blanc isn't the center of any of things, any of these. In Knives Out, he's not the donut soul and donut soul. In this, he's not the center of the glass onion. He is a tertiary character at the end of the day. And I love the fact that it's a murder mystery movie that can keep me on my toes. It's like the Poirot stuff. I will never read one of the Poirot stories before one of the movies comes out, because I want to be gripped by it. And it's not a problem we're going to have with the Benoit Blanc mysteries, the Knives Out mysteries, because there is nothing predicating these. I think we uh, missed out on having Angela Lansbury actually play a character in one of these. Yes, the cameos at the beginning, where Benoit Blanc is playing Among Us in the Bath with his friends. Stephen Sondheim and Angela Sondheim. Like, tough, tough time for Benoit Blanc. Uh, But yeah, it's just a great, great film. Say your piece, Lawson. We don't have time. Uh, I've I've put in uh, my thoughts here and there. I think it's really strong. I don't think it's as strong as the first movie, which was mm. my favourite movie of 2019, but it was a very, very amusing, compelling film. I agree with everything that you said about Daniel Craig. He's got such presence as Benoit Blanc. And, and yeah, this seems like the kind of franchise that they could do for 30 years if they want, you know. You know, it doesn't have to be a sequel every other year. It can be like, you know, been 10 years, let's come back, you know. It's, whenever, it's, they get, whenever they get the story. Yeah, they're nice little self-contained things that it just makes so much sense. Mm. Uh, it's like, the comparison I draw, it's two murder mystery movies, what Scream is, to horror films. Um. So now we've got, what do we have here? Your number three, Sean. I will be talking about a movie that has crawled up to me, laid an egg in my brain, and has not let me go ever since. It's still feasting on what's left of my grey matter, Mad God. I mean, holy shit. Holy shit. This is just creativity unleashed. The amount of effort that has gone into Phil Tippett's Mad God is... Nothing short of miraculous, but I'll let 30 Holly... years of madness. 30 years festering underneath, congealing on celluloid. It is brilliant. It's just disturbing. We have so many good strong showcases of stop-motion animation this year. We have Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. We have uh, The House that was on sh- Netflix, I believe. Wendell or Shadow, One of the two. Uh, Wendell Wild. We have this. Bad God is what stop motion is for. It is big. It is grand. It has a brevity of language that is honestly commendable. The only two words spoken are, oh no. And that's perfect for what this movie is. It is full of shit and violence and misery. and Theater of cruelty. Theater of cruelty shit. There's also a small snippet of 
uh, Vladimir Putin raw dogging Donald Trump, uh, which was unexpected, but it is like, it is madness. Yeah. I, I don't know if Phil Tippett is ever going to make a movie again after this. This is like peering into the mind of a crazy person. It is so wildly creative. It is so uncompromising in its brutality. It is two hours, but feels like ten in the best way possible. This is like a tall music video stretched to breaking point and then crystallizing that moment. It's it a is technical marvel, too. A technical marvel. The amount of effort that has gone into putting this together, the fact that there are live-action actors, you know, having interactions with the stop-motion things, the fact that there are moments that's, that look just so supremely fluid, so utterly and utterly fluid that you think you're looking at a person in a suit. I was fooled several times. It is wild. It is... Not cr- for everyone. It's not for everyone. It is the only time something has cracked my top three of anything where I can roundly say, hey, not for you. If I know enough about a person, I can say, yeah, you're not going to like it. It's a movie that I can say to my mom and dad, yeah, no. But unlike Skinnamarink, it's... This is like the anti-Skinnamarink. It has got (laughs) everything, everything happening. It it is so dense that it has lived in my brain for almost a year. Mm. And I still can't get over some of the images. The little shit men were just going about their days and destroyed and then being reformed. The fact that the first assassin's job is futile because he comes across mountains, a desert full of bombs, just like the one he's carrying. The the sequence when he's driving through the wasteland... Through war. It's just... It's 30 years of misery. Condensed. Animated in the most painstaking, miserable possible way you could do it. And he did it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Alright, so what does that put us at here? Does that put me at my number Your number two. No, no my three. number three. Um, oh, yeah. I actually think Harley has indicated this is higher on his list earlier, and it wasn't his number three, so it must still be to come. It's X. Higher. Yep. So no. it's not on your list at all. Bubble. It's not on your list at all, Harley. At all. Jesus Christ. Keep in mind, though, Lawson, that for a good month, we were both like, we need to go see X in cinemas. <sighs> and Harley was like, I don't feel like it. Mm. And bodies, bodies, okay. bodies. He had, we had to, he had to be dragged to that. He had to be dragged to per, personal history of David Copperfield a few years ago, which was his mm-hmm. favorite movie of the year. Um, yeah, really, really terrible hit rate in terms of him not it's wanting to go like, to a movie and actually being right about it. It's almost like Lawson knows what he's talking about. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> okay. Fine. Uh, anyways, though. X is my number three. I think it is, it's a fantastic movie. It's a movie yeah. that I have turned over so much. Um, it was one of the last, it was the subject of one of the last assignments I wrote for my university degree. I'd love to film. read that, by the way. Yeah, it's like sort of comparing the treatment of um, women and sexuality in horror movies between X and Friday the 13th. And, um, Ooh, and I think good choice. that that is what this movie is about, ultimately. It, it's about gender, sexuality, 
and its place in horror and the sort of situation of horror. Like just throughout, there are just so many little details that, uh, that about how women are treated in both pornography and in horror movies traditionally. Um, the way that like right from the start that there is the sort of there's the farm thing and there's the way they use the cows as I mean, not to get too crude about it, but like the sort of um, commercialization of the teat. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And right from the very beginning, they draw the connection of what is going of the idea of horror movies. Like there is this cow on the road at the very beginning before they even get to the farm that has been, you know, run over. Like there is this whole idea right from the very start, like right down to the um, pornographer. Uh, the uh, is it Martin Donovan, the main the head guy who's yeah. financing everything when he goes into the barn looking for people at night and steps on a piece of wood. You know, he steps mm. on on wood and is penetrated mm. by a nail. And then later on, hears a, a sound outside, looks through a small hole people. in a peephole, but not even that. But he looks through a hole and is then penetrated through the eye. I mean, they're not mm, being pitiful. subtle about it. And I got to talk about that in a university assignment. But um, <laughs> it's, it's a really brilliantly performed movie. It's a really brilliantly shot movie. I think that the cast, like, this is the thing that really differentiates it from Pearl for me, is that I just mm -hmm. liked the characters so much, and I liked Fully their agree. dynamic so we're much. We're stuck with Pearl, in Pearl, we're stuck with Pearl. Yeah. And she's a hard person to But I think that's with. why it's higher for me, because I just dug I that, that character so much. Yeah. We need to talk about several things. The first is, don't fear the Reaper. Yes. But not yep. only that, it's the way that it then fades into something classic. Her dancing, yeah. which is so ex you're, it's so it's Pearl's Joker moment. Yeah, it's so much more contextualized by the movie Pearl. But it is sort of not only like not only that, but it is the sort of red light. Like this blood has splashed onto the um the light, and it's a red light. And you know the connection of red light in terms of sex work. You know, it's very yeah. well considered, and the way that she sort of becomes virile ag again and young yeah. again in that red light. It's all the, about it. It all connects. And the song, mm. Don't Fear the Reaper. There's a whole lot to be said about time in this movie as well. That's a pretty great theme as well. The the horror of growing older, not feeling desired, that's that's huge. And I love that it's a Mia Goth it's Mia Goth playing both roles. Yeah. She is both Maxine and Pearl. I also have to say, this this little moment was a runner-up for the Mole Man Award. Pearl firing the shotgun. Yeah, just going absolutely flying. Like, getting totally shit-mixed. That, that entire scene, how it's intercutting between uh, Mia Goth's character, Maxine, saying, I will not accept a life that I do not deserve. Being mirrored that, like, with the preacher on the TV, and the fact that she is the preacher's daughter. Well, it's not just that, it's like, when she starts going, I am special, I am a star, after watching Pearl, I'm like, oh no. No, but you see, oh, no. you see Maxine fully believe it. Well, that's the mirror, and that's what the sort of part of the thesis of my essay was that it's, it is that twinship between the characters that, you know... Mm. Pearl is this person who wanted to be a star, but was sort of discarded by the world. And here is Mia Goth, who is young and still has all of the sort of, you know, the sexuality that horror movies, that pornography 
often trade upon and mm. you know it's the sort of revenge of the past over woman in the form of pearl like yeah it's it's a really deep complex movie and more than that i just think it's more fun than pearl which is why it is so much mm. higher uh on my list and you see it's someone also- get killed by an alligator which mm. is always fun it's an old person it's an old people slasher movie yep you don't see that very often Jesus, you look like you're about to tell me a scary story. Yeah, it's gotten dark, and I need to... Uh, just give me a minute here to go and turn on the light, because it has... <laughs> yeah. I'm starting to look like I'm giving, like, demands in a hostage video. Hello, detective. You'll never find all the bodies. Go to these specific coordinates, Mr. Commissioner. Yeah, that's better. We can see your face. Yep. Now I don't feel like I'm going to get killed tonight. (laughs) Um. So that brings us to your number two, Harley. Yep. And anyone who knows me knows that this was coming. Have you ever wanted something? (laughs) Please don't sing. (laughs) It's Suno. Yes. Same. It's my number two as well. It's your number two also. It had to be. It was my number, rom- for the record, it was my number six. I'm a romantic at heart. Yeah. I love musicals. And I really enjoy Peter Dinklage. And they've done this using the story, like the first. It's like the quintessential love story. Yeah. There were ones before and ones after it, but Cyrano is the quintessential story. The balcony scene is, it's been replicated so many times over the the feeding lines to another person thing. They did this it in Dumb and the... Dumber 2. They did it in Dumb and Dumber 2. <laughs> they did it in American Pie. They do That's... it everywhere. It is archetypal. The music is phenomenal. The, the, the whole balcony sequence with the song Overcome, that is pure. It's a pure telling of the story. And some may disagree with me. I do like it when the singers in musicals are incredibly competent. Very com- I do like it when performers in musicals are very confident, very competent singers. But in a movie musical, I want them to act as well. I want them to really act. And while Peter Dinklage is not the most technically gifted singer around... He's still not Pierce Brosnan. My God, he acts it! It's, um... I actually think he's pretty on Pierce Brosnan level if you go back and the two but like that that's the thing is that it works for his character he's not polished you know he's not no. presentable he's not the you know the hot romantic option and the guy that he's writing the words for is he does have that sort of like almost it's so perfect a voice that it could be auto-tuned like like mm. that's the dichotomy there and it really really works uh, but like you get all the emotion from him that is necessary for the character and I gotta love me some Ben Mendelsohn, mate. Talk about some. Talk about someone who doesn't hold any of the notes, but spits and barks the words. What, what I, I deserve, deserve is a great villain song where he even doesn't even hit the tempo he doesn't of try. the song properly. Doesn't <laughs> like, even try. That's the thing. Like it is this sort of like slobbering, like sh- bark, this shout. Of a yeah. of a performance, and that is exactly what the character needs. It is the reveal of not of this sort of veneer of re- authority and respectability that he has, but no, the true man underneath, the the actual soul of the guy is rotten. 
and that is yeah, what you see in that in that performance. Yeah. His soul is dog shit. Mm. But I... it's such a great performance from Ben Mendelsohn too. Yeah, he plays a great foil to both Dinklage and Christian. Haley Bennett as Roxanne is wonderful. The touches that she puts in some of the songs, the way that she sings the parts in Overcome in every letter in No Cyrano, are just beautiful and heartbreaking. I need more. That that emotion is what makes the movie so good in the end. Um, I I think, and the way that it works with the music on, like the No Cyrano, is just a gorgeous beat to end on. And then there's the um. The, I forget the name of it, but it's the letters that they're getting. Yeah. Um. Uh, that would be uh. Where I fall. Where I fall. Where, where yeah. I fall. Yeah, that's that's a great moment too. Like it just is a movie with it. I teared up. Yeah, a lot of grace and a lot of elegance to it. There's a specific image from Cyrano that was really affecting to me, and it's a it's a framing and shot that is happens in my favorite movie pink floyd's the wall by alan parker and it is a group of soldiers walking into the smoke Mm. and disappearing that is so powerful an image for me and everything peter dinklage is doing is spectacular the moment that he gets told that roxanne is in love with a guard and his regiment the way he you says, can pinpoint, of course he is. Of course he is. You is, can pinpoint the moment his heart breaks in half. It's an incredible performance. And it's a line that you have spoken about, Harley. All the great stories will return to their original, the original form. original form. And that he is this. He has to die at the end. The, it, the beautiful tragedy, the fact that he could have, have shot his shot. Her. It is a comedy of... It is a, what I would call a tragedy of errors. Mm. And it's beautiful. Just a beautiful story. All right, that brings us to my number two, which I actually think I can pick what both of your number ones are. At okay, this point, go for it. Mini game. Well, I think I let me. I'll pick them before you say them, rather than if I'm right, it would completely destroy any suspense right now. <laughs> um, but I know that this one is not on any of your list because, as far as I'm, I know you haven't seen it. It is Babylon. This is a movie that is just jaw-dropping, breathtaking, or inspiring It was competing for the number one slot for me. It was so, so good. And it's an utterly divisive movie. Like, you are going to love this, or you are going to hate it. You are going to be ready for the absolute, like, manic muchness of all of it, or you are going to recoil from it. But I connected with it from the beginning, and it never let me go, I think, it's just, it is, it is La La Land meets Boogie Nights meets like singing in the rain. I mean, it's, it's all over the place. And that's what I love about it. It's about Hollywood, about early Hollywood. It's about, you know, this idea of Hollywood is this Babylon, this city of sin, you know, indulgence, you know, people having orgies and people getting drunk and people doing Pre-code? Drugs. Pre-code, pre-code was fucking nuts. Yeah. And, but then it also is about, why films matter, um, tragic sort of figures from those uh, that era of Hollywood, the way that Hollywood chews people up and spits them out. It has the best score of the year, in my opinion, from Justin Hurwitz, and it is 
like right there in the um in alongside the tone and the aesthetic of the rest of the movie it's so like manic and kind of like jaunty and over the top it's so good i have heard a bit of this score and it's taking everything Herwitz has done in the little bits of score from whiplash and the bits of score from la la land and has just gone insane it's it's like the score of mank on speed the performances are also great i'm not i'm a little cold on pit i think he's a little miscast but margot robbie is just show-stopping it's the best performance that she's ever given uh she is just magnetic every time that she steps onto the screen and the uh other leads there are sort of a three three leads that it's divided between her brad pitt and diego calva who is a a fantastic actor and gets a ton of like the really heavy emotional stuff to do here um there is just the aesthetic of it the design of it it's so gorgeous from beginning to end it continues with the uh the obsession with long takes that damien chazelle has and it is some of the most sort of gripping sort of beautiful visuals that are have been in a movie uh last year and um it is the mo- the other movie from um, what I was going to... What, like I said, that Triangle of Sadness was competing with another movie for my favourite scene of the year. It was this movie. It ends with, you know, years after the dust has settled with all of the stuff that's gone on in this movie. And Diego, uh, Diego Calva's character is sort of the last one standing. And he's this middle-aged man. And he goes to the movies and he sits down and he sees singing in the rain which so much which echoes so much of like the ideas of this film and as he's watching it he starts crying and then the justin Hurwitz score starts up and it starts sort of like going the the jazzy manic and then all of a sudden it switches to shots of other movies and it's this collage of stuff from the very first movie that's ever that was ever filmed to avatar to all of that stuff in the present day intercut with hyper close-ups of like film developing and the color process and like it goes into this like cacophony of sound um and then it cuts back to diego calver in the cinema the music drops out and he's not crying anymore he's smiling and that's the end of the movie like it's just such a such a gorgeous like impeccably put together thing that just totally worked on me and um i understand that it's not for everyone it is it is a movie that is unapologetically itself it is a movie that damien chazelle has burnt all of his uh political capital within hollywood to make it is his swing for the fences it's the one that he has is so clearly not commercial like it just isn't and He's used every bit of pull that he has to get it made. And um, I really hope he gets the chance to do something like it again, because it did not do well. It it, it didn't do as badly as it looked like it might um, in it, when it first released, but it still absolutely lost money. It was a $78 million budget. It made 63 mil worldwide. For a while there, it looked like it was going to make maybe 20, 25 mil, but it ended up having a really long tail. Um, but uh, yeah, I it's just... It is a more than any other movie this year. It is such an ambitious piece of filmmaking. Um, so that brings us to your number one, Harley. And I ca- think I can predict it. May I? 
before we get into that, can we do our honorable mentions? Uh, sure. Yes. I just think better for the suspense. Maybe. Yes. The American Idol thing of we'll be back after this commercial break. <laughs> All right, Harley, your honorable mentions. My honorable mentions. Matilda the Musical. Death on the Nile. I was actually ruined for a whole week after that movie. It bummed me out something fierce. Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which is probably my favorite animated film of the year. Uh, the way it started with, this is a fairy tale. Really set itself apart from the rest of Shrek. The Banshees of Inishirin. I just loved it. It was a lot of fun for me. And of course, Bullet Train. All right, John, your honorable mentions. I'll try to mention the ones that Harley hasn't mentioned already. Top Gun Maverick. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. They did that. They did that. Yeah. Yeah. Men. Good lord. Wow. Holy shit. Another they one that, that was on the bubble. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. They did that. Avatar The Way of the Water. Good lord. This movie is gorgeous. Uh, Elvis. All of its issues aside, I loved it. I thought the, it, the unchained melody sequence. It was put together from a technical beautiful. standpoint so well in my eyes. And moments from that movie have been popping into my head throughout the ever since I saw it. And the same with its slightly stranger, slightly weirder wink cousin, weird the Al Yankovic story. Uh, this is a bit of an upset for me that it, it didn't make it onto the list. But I dug every single little thing that this movie was doing. Mm. Uh, but it didn't hit my emotions like some of these others did. Uh, the Northman, I really, really enjoyed. Prey, I really, really enjoyed. Wakanda oh. Forever was a beautiful send-off for Chadwick Boseman. Five. Uh, Lightyear. <laughs> and you <Five>. keep going. <laughs> You're supposed to do five. Uh, Wounded we, Fawn. You can't Leave even it. list all 30-whatever that you... <laughs> Smile! John, shut up! Lawson? Um, my, uh, five... Uh, I just want to stop you for a moment, Metal Lords. Harley didn't see it, Lawson didn't see it, but it hit me where I live as a metalhead. So, okay. you can go on now. <laughs> Good. Um, in alphabetical order... Uh, Bros, which I think is incredibly funny, incredibly heartwarming, and important for what it represents as being the first uh, LGBT romantic comedy from a major studio. Uh, the Forgiven, the Ray Fiennes, uh, Jessica Chastain movie, which was in hot competition with Bullet Train for my number 10. It was the one that came close. Uh, Moonfall, which is so, so dumb. But so gloriously entertaining. <laughs> Which should be nowhere near anyone's top ten of anything. In a slower year, would have made it on your list. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Like, I think, honestly... Cats did, didn't it? Yes, it was... Cats was Cats mine. Cats is different. Cats for, is the a forgiven, special case. The Forgiven... It would probably be The Forgiven, then Moonfall. So if two of the ones on my ten hadn't come out... It would have just slipped in there, yes. But it, it is also a movie that contains the immortal line, we've scanned your consciousness, you're part of the moon now. And <laughs> and I can't help but love a movie with that line in it. Like, you just, you can't not have a great time. It, it, I, if, it's like, what are we doing? If you can't enjoy a movie about the moon coming out of its orbit, starting to collide with the Earth, then turning out to be a space station 
driven by a ancient alien race, then why are you even going to the cinema? Um, <laughs> but uh, sorry, that was a lot on Moonfall. Next one, Smile. Uh, and lastly, mm-hmm. 3,000 Years of Longing. I also want to shout out Bodies, Bodies, Bodies for having the greatest death of the year, which is <laughs> yes. Pete Davison killing Slash himself because he's an idiot. Trying to open a bottle. Do you want to do the dishonorable mention now right, and end on a yes. positive note uh, then? With yeah, the... actually, you know what? I was thinking that would be a good mm. idea. I, I also have my awards. Mm. Um, we mm. can do that where we would normally we do, do the other afterwards. awards. Um, But, uh, yes, Dishonorable Mention is the most disappointing movie to us. Not necessarily the worst, because let's face it, if it looks terrible, we usually don't go and see it. Perhaps if we ever do one of those retrospective 10-year-down-the-lines looking back episodes we've talked about, we'll have seen enough terrible movies to be able to actually do a proper worst movie uh, thing. But uh, for now, it's most disappointing, and... We might share a selection. Why don't you? Maybe. Why don't you go, Harley? Are we doing one dishonorable mention or several? Just the one. Just the one. I think. The yeah. most disappointing. So not the worst thing we've seen, which I think we can all agree would be Morbius. No, <laughs> not even remotely. Right. Okay. Interesting. Anywho, hmm. uh, I will start. My dishonorable mention is one that must be predictable. It's not Black Adam. Hmm. It's Spirited. <laughs> really. I love A Christmas Carol. <laughs> I adore A Christmas Carol. I you didn't had, see that coming, actually. You had so many chances to tell the story in a compelling way. But you gave me a Ryan Reynolds... Sorry, I need a moment to compose myself. <laughs> Just do your you one, Ra- Lawson. You put Will Ferrell as Scrooge? You put Will Ferrell Scrooge and had him have his whole little song and dance number. Several, in fact, but Patrick Page as Jacob Marley doesn't get one. Gets a half a song. Especially considering his song sounded dope as hell. You you kill a kid. You didn't earn it. Didn't come anywhere close. And if you really had the stones, you would have killed another. (laughs) But you didn't. (laughs) Chicken shit. Cowards. (laughs) Cowards. <laughs> all right, all right, John. You do your one, Lawson. Ryan Reynolds no, is all right. With alphabetical order, come okay, on. Okay. Uh, so, as I said just before, the worst movie that I've seen this year was Morbius, because of course it was. But I think the most disappointing movie for me was probably Jack Jurassic World Dominion. That's mine as well. Just <laughs> I. Honestly, if I didn't enjoy it as much as I did, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent would have been the disappointment. As a disappointment, that movie yeah. should have been excellent. Well, but it here's was the fine. thing, and this is the thing I wrestled with thinking about this. There were movies I disliked more than Jurassic World Dominion. I mm. did. I hated Black Adam. Like, yeah. like I really you turned on it. To. Um, exactly. I didn't have high expectations for it, and there were other ones that, like Halloween Ends. I was really disappointed by it. I enjoyed it, but I was disappointed by it. I yeah. didn't think it lived up to it the previous two. Mm. But at least it was trying something. At least yeah. it had an idea and it had ambition. It was a swing. Exactly. And I will take a thousand unsuccessful swings over whatever the hell this movie's doing. Like, what <laughs> was the point of, like, it's a $200 million mess of nothing. It's nothing. It's blank 
hollow it's it's blockbuster movie making that has cannibalized itself and left nothing for the audience. And I liked Fallen Kingdom. Mm, yeah, enough. I I liked it well enough. It was it was Fallen Kingdom had some warning signs in retrospect, but like Oh yeah. You had such a great premise coming out of Fallen Kingdom. The dinosaurs have escaped. They're everywhere in the world now. Let's go. And instead, I've said it before, and I I cannot fathom it. You immediately go back into the park for another, like, weird corporate espionage stories about mutant wasps. But it's with Tim Cook as the villain this time. What are we doing here, people? What were you thinking? (sighs) It's right there. It's right there. Have the dinosaurs going around the real world and focus, not just do five minutes of wishy-washy bullshit, do an actual full movie about how life has changed because these dinosaurs are out there. I thought I was going to be most visceral in my hatred for Spirited, but no, you taught me there with your hatred for Dominion. Hey, look, you put me on Jurassic World Dominion, you put me on Black Adam, I will not... (laughs) Not hold back. Hey, Holly, you you said two children needed to die in this movie. But anyway, uh, yeah, they did. D- Dominion I re- was I such also, just to say, a shame. John, I reject your uh, your contention that Morbius is the worst movie than Jurassic World Dominion. I don't think it is. I would also argue that Black Adam is worse than Morbius, but that's another conversation. <laughs> to be fair, Morbius has one good scene, and that is Matt Smith dancing. That's it. I don't know, I kind of like when that like nurse is like going down the hall in the hospital and the lights are just going off. Mm. Like, there are a couple Always of... Always much longer than it should be, yeah. but it's effective. Yeah, but anyway, let's pull ourselves out of the pit, everyone. Yeah, let's get let's, out of this funk. Let's get out of this funk that the 2020s have put us in, and let's <laughs> say what our favourite movie of this past year, 2022, was. Let me guess what yours is, Harley. Mm-hmm. I think, through process of elimination, it's the menu. No. No. Fuck off. I said the menu. When? Oh, that's right. Oh, Wait, you, did. you did? Right. It's everywhere. So, everything, oh, right. Everywhere, I've gotten the two of you mixed up. I th- like, you're, you're everything, this everywhere, all This is the first time you've John ever done that. John is the menu. Yes, I'm the menu. <laughs> yes. This is the first time you've ever done this, and you do this now? <laughs> <laughs> On the most important night. About I, could, I could tell you. I can tell you a part. I was just mixing up which of you had had the. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> to be fair though, we're both wearing yellow shirts. All right. So Harley is everything, everywhere, all at once, which was John's four and my four also. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Sometimes the Oscars get it right. Yeah. Very, very rarely, but sometimes. You know, Parasite, best international feature of the year that came out. You know, I agree with the Oscars on that one. Everything everywhere all at once hits me where I live. I am an absurdist at heart. A romantic absurdist at heart. Yes, I love the philosophy of absurdism. In the philosophy of of absurdism, nothing matters. But everything also matters. It's an absurd absurd state of being. It's an absurd thought to have, but where are we now? We're talking from, like, a super long distance away, over invisible waves that pass through the goddamn sky. The world we live in is absurd. And this movie believes in that philosophy of absurdism fully and completely. Of course, there is, in a world of infinite possibilities, you could be anything. 
but you're you. You're you right now. Everything that's happened in your life has brought you there, and that's okay. The f- action sequences are fantastic. I love the fact that a small team worked on the VFX for this, and it still looks fantastic. It has the second greatest piggyback ride of 2022. <laughs> Rakakuni! Voiced um, by Randy Newman. Yes. It is the premier multiverse film. Michelle Yeoh is outstanding. She really, really makes the story work. It's just got such heart to it. It's just yes. boundlessly creative, too. Like, that is the thing. It's like, it just throws everything that it can come up with. It is so, yeah. so weird, which is why it's so great that it won the Oscar for Best Picture. Um, yes. And Jamie Lee Curtis is yeah. fantastic. But, like, the way that uh, also, it even for A24, this was out weird. there. And for it to yeah. succeed the way that it did, it's just just phenomenal. For it to win Best Director for its directing pair, like, I, if there was any movie that I really hope has a ripple effect in terms of influencing movies through its success, it's this. I want more movies like this. I want more movies that are just utter boundless creative visions. And that's the thing. I mean, I've I've been reading news stories for the last few months about how AI is going to, like, you know, take over a whole bunch of things and, like, AI to write stories and write scripts. And that's the thing at the end. There's just... I'm I'm philosophically against that as a thing because art, stories, that is uh, so profoundly human and no AI, no matter how broken it got, could come up with this story. Like, this comes from such a particular and heartfelt place from filmmakers who had ambition and guts and it is, in a lot of ways, um, it shows... It, it is storytelling at its most pure and creative. And that's really... My fa- I just love it. My favourite performer in the movie is Kehi Kwan as Waymond. His whole philosophy of just being decent, mm. kind, enjoying what you have, because what you have is exactly that. It's all you have. And I love that a movie could make googly eyes on rocks. It's like crucial emotional center point. I love the line, in another life, I would love to do laundry and taxes with you. I love the fact that the whole point of the movie is fighting against nihilism. It is fighting against the overwhelming everything and really championing, bringing it down to appreciating what you've got and that there is space for you to be all of these different things. And you don't have to accomplish all of them, but... There is a power in trying. There, There is power in a simple life. And I found that really powerful at the end of the day. Also, I've never seen someone use a fanny pack as a weapon like that before, so... Or put a butt plug up their ass and butt become plug a fight, fighter yes. after it. Yes, the butt plug fight. And this yeah. movie won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Sometimes the Academy gets it right. Yeah, I said to you, it is... It is easily the weirdest Best Picture win ever, but it's also the most correct win since Return of the King in 2003. Yeah. yeah. This Absolutely. movie, the score by Sunlux is just fantastic in all of the ways that I enjoyed about Don't Breathe, but it works so beautifully here. 
It's ethereal and gorgeous. The song by uh guy from the Talking Heads, got his name, but it's a beautiful beautiful song and the way that the whole film was put together. The fact that the movie is about just being good to people. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. Regret is such an interesting thing because all of the happiness that you've felt since that thing that you think could have gone differently would never have happened. You, right, the um, only life that you have is the one you are living now and the one you can make for yourself. All right, we and, we need to yeah. do we do need to hurry along yeah. because we've run long and I am running out of time here. So yeah. uh, why don't we move on to Jean's number one, which I know exactly what it is. It's the menu because it the is menu. my number one also. Uh, yeah, it is. So, so, like, I this is the movie I walked out of that movie. I walked out of the cinema, I'm like, that movie's going to be my number one of the year. And it was. Yeah. As a, as a shit kicker, as the movie likes to say, I get it. I get it deep in my bones now. Everything that... Slowick is such a fascinating character because you see where he's coming from, you understand why he's doing all of the things he's doing, but... It's, he's also cracked and twisted. He's yeah. also twisted. He's lost his mind in a very significant way. And Ray Fiennes is just ferocious. Like, he is a yeah. powerhouse. Yeah. He, like, the fact that he was not nominated for an Oscar for this... Is bullshit. Is bullshit. But, of course, this is, an, uh, this is a movie that, you know, it, it needs to hit in a certain way for a movie like this to get in there, and it, and it didn't. But it was so... It was tense. It was funny. It's so funny. got such well-written dialogue and such great character actors to speak it. Um, and I love that also that it is, it isn't what you necessarily think it is going in. It's not a horror movie. It was kind of marketed as a horror movie, but it's mm. not. It is kind of a thriller, but for the most part, it is people talking in one room. Mm. And through that, it explores all of these ideas related to class, re- related to... Um, food, not yeah, food, but also not food. Like yeah. it's it's about hobbies and passion in general. Exactly, consumerism and sort of like um, the elegance and simplicity. Yeah, and and passion and craft. Yeah, like that's something that's there. But it, at the same time, it's not snobby. You know, this is also the kind of movie whose philosophy is shut up, Martin Scorsese. Like it can be art to be a Marvel movie as well. <laughs> like. Um, that is part of it I love Nicholas Holt here Mm. such a doofus so good he plays he plays snobby dipshit very well I love Tyler's bullshit yeah Tyler's bullshit Tyler's bullshit fantastic that it's it's for those who haven't seen it every time a new (laughs) dish comes out it sort of does a freeze frame with this like like it was a restaurant this is what it is created with like delicious something something and freshly picked sparkling whatever and then it just comes up with when um they get nicholas holt to cook something and it's terrible and half under underheated and it just comes up with undercooked tyler's, lamb tyler's totally bullshit. Un- yeah tyler's Ty- bullshit <laughs> yeah. totally inedible uh leek butter and onion eat no leek butter and shallot sauce sauce and he just okay, goes what up do you to him think that- what do you think that Slowak whispered in his ear? I think I know. You can go. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would work. That would definitely like, it would be very infitting with his character. Yeah, it's like you can go. 
you may leave. But it just it has You have no place here. It has that kind of like class in its dialogue at the same time as being very witty. I mean it's something that what's the line that you've quoted, John? I don't remember it exactly, but the student debt line where she's yes. she's asking if she, oh. like why am I gonna get where killed? Did you you go know, to, I'm just the Where assistant. did you go to college? Brown. Did you have student debt? debt? No. no. You're dying. You're dying too. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's such a good line. Yeah. Uh, and- John Leguizamo is also great here. Mm. The fact that Sloak's entire reason for having this guy <laughs> sat down at one of these tables, <laughs> ready to be turned into a friggin' uh, marshmallow, Small. is... I put one on day off. Paging Dr. Sunshine. Yeah. And it was the worst thing I had ever seen. Watching someone's passion leave their eyes. You ruined my one day off. <laughs> yeah. And the way that John Leguizamo, as that monologue go on, it's the best monologue in the movie from Ray Fiennes. It's the funniest, and he just performs it with such like deadpan intensity. And then, it, and as it goes on, John Leguizamo is just kind of like, "Yeah, that's that's a fair cop." Like he's, yeah. just, he's kind of convinced that he deserves it. But like that's Excellent part of point. that is is in keeping with the idea of the, what this movie is saying about you know mm. passion simplicity versus there's no point being ostentatious for ostentatious' sake. With that, it's sort of like getting at all of those you know Oscar bait movies and and all of that stuff that is so geared towards and also high art a- quote unquote versus low art, which is what traditionally a movie like this would and have been also the of. pedestal people put the artist on. Hmm. All of these people go to see Chef Slowick when he isn't actually cooking anything. Yeah. They're his not recipes, but his people are making it. Yeah. They I love his uh, army of fanatics. They put this the, auteur uh, on a pedestal and there's that scene where the men get separated from the women, and it's explained that he, you know, is not a good guy. He tried to use his power to have a relationship with one of his staff, and it's a skewing it idea of that too. It was Everyone her idea at the end. Is her idea, and he's like, "Yes, absolutely." And they all think that it's Sloic, but all of these people working for him have a part to play as well. Mm. Jeremy, that. I think his name's Jeremy, the guy that kills himself in front of everyone. And there's that those two critics who are the, no the critic and her publisher were like, you know what I think? I think this is for us. <laughs> this is for us. Mm. And you've also got Sloak's mother, who is just sitting there getting absolutely shattered on wine, and she's just sitting there like, eh, let him die. <laughs> it, it, I... A fantastic movie and. A, such a heartwarming together. moment when Margot asks for just a cheeseburger, and, and the piece God, of music by Colin, the piece of music by Colin Stetson there makes it one of the best moments of the year. The beautiful mm. simplicity of her being like, "My eyes were too big for my stomach. Can I get it to go?" And the way that he's he just happily is like, "Of course you can. Yeah. Of course you can." It's just beautiful. It's such a dense film. So before we move on to Harley's special awards, why don't we each quickly run through our top 10 again? Yep. Harley, why don't you start us off from 10 to 1? Number 10 is The Black Phone. Number 9 is 3,000 Years of Longing. Number 8, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. 7 is Mad God. 6 is R-R-R. Number 5 is The Batman. Number 4 is The Menu. Number 3 is Glass Onion, A Knives Out Story. 
Number two is Serena. And number one is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. My top ten is Matilda the Musical at number ten. Nine, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Eight, Bullet Train. Seven, Barbarian. Swapping between five and six are Pearl and X. They could go honestly either way. My number four is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Three, Mad God. Two, Cyrano. And number one, The Menu. For me, it's number 10, Bullet Train. Number nine, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Number eight, Triangle of Sadness. Number seven, Tar. Number six, Cyrano. Number five, Barbarian. Number four, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Number three, X. Number two, Babylon. And number one, The Menu. And as always, as we have had these conversations, I have been giving numbers to each of our rankings. Uh, Our number 10s all got a 1, our number 1s all got a 10, etc. To find out what our consensus list is. And our top 10 consensus list tied for number 10 is Bullet Train and Tar. Two very different movies. Number 9 is RRR. Number 8 is The Batman and Pearl. Number 7 is Babylon. Number 6 is Barbarian and Glass Onion. Number five is Mad God. Number four is X. Number three is Cyrano. Number two is Everything Everywhere All at Once. And number one is The Menu. Yep. I can't Can't, argue with that. Can't be unhappy with that turnout. All right. Now, why don't we move on to your little specialty awards? I have two specialty awards that I have constructed. It is something that I was doing before the podcast started. And I may have missed the missed out the first year, but I think I had it last year. You did. We'll see. Uh, The first is the Mole Man Award for Physical Comedy. For those who are new here, uh, just think of the small sequence of Mole Man getting hit by the football in the groin from The Simpsons. Uh, For here, it is about slapstick, about physical comedy, about people getting hurt. And the Mole Man Award for Physical Comedy goes to Jackass Forever. Who else could it go to? Because of course it did. Sort of a shoo really. It's really a shoo Not only do people get hit in the balls routinely, there's the tension of, at any moment, any moment, Johnny Knoxville has something planned to screw you over. Yeah. Anyone who comes on set has to keep their head on a goddamn swivel. If someone can make Eric Andre panic at the thought that he could be around any corner, if that... You can, if you can fit an airbag in something, be yeah. wary of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh... Then there is the Golden Barney Award, which is the award I give to the story or character or scene from a film that makes me upset. Uh, But not only upset, it's also upset in that funny, don't cry for me, I'm already dead kind of way from the same episode of The Simpsons. The Golden Barney for the year 2022 goes to everything Dominic from Banshees of Inisherin. Yeah, particularly the scene, uh, where Parik's sister says no. E- everything Barry Keoghan is doing just makes me sad. Hmm. It bums me out. Uh, Barry Keoghan is wonderful in the Banshees of Inisherin. It's a very sad film, but he is the saddest character of all because everything just sucks about his life, hmm. and he dies at the end, which again sucks. Uh, the close runner-up for the Golden Barney of the year uh, was everything Book from Death 
on the Nile. <laughs> I was ruined. I, I was ruined Book for was a straight-up week. Book was our boy. Uh, he was our guy. He was our little little soldier. But Second movie coming into these Poirot things, I did not expect Poirot's friend just eat shit and die like that. It ended on a very sad note. Um, but yeah, those are my two awards for the year. Well, there we are, everyone. Uh, that is the end of our episode. Those are our favourite films of 2022. Uh, and so now, why don't you do our wrap-up spiel, Harley? Yep. So if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit... Oh, uh, before that. The role of the year we would recast with this podcast. No, we don't have time. Yeah, we don't have time, and I don't think it worked last year as well as I wanted it to. Best to just save it for when we inevitably do the episodes on these movies. Fair enough. Uh, So if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counter for joining my on the bright side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. What are your top ten films of the year? Uh, what do you think about our choices? What would you choose different? Would you make it a different order? Tell us all that in the Twitter or in the comments sections on the podcast apps. Just keep in mind that on the podcast apps, depending on what service you use, you could either be talking about one episode or the show on the whole. Depending on your service, I know that for Apple Podcasts, it's for on the whole, and for others, it's specific. Just refer to the episode you're talking about. That's a better way for us to actually past the messages. Please do like, rate, comment, and subscribe. This year, of course being 23 AC after Conquest, uh, we do still have the Oscars. Uh, of course, there is no great amount of films being made. They are still made, but not as many as before. And of course, as Lawson feared, robots now do a vast majority of the writing. Uh, we have several more Marvel movies that have come out. Uh, DC has continued doing their shtick. A lot of the movies that have been talked about on this podcast have gotten a lot of appreciation, uh, except a lot of stuff in Mad God has come true. All I have to say to that is, oh no. Mm. Well, we've been talking about movies for just about as long as Babylon's running time. (laughs) So... Uh, Yes. So, Lawson, what do we have prepared for us next week? Something simpler, I wouldn't wonder. Yep. Just a regular old movie, a, a little bit of a smaller one, or a pretty forgotten one, I think, but uh, a movie that with, I think, a fair bit to talk about. It is Unthinkable, the uh, 2010 thriller starring Carrie-Anne Moss, Samuel L. Jackson, and Michael Sheen. If you would like to follow along at home, you can find it available for streaming in Australia on Netflix, as well as for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Apple, and Amazon stores. Yep, so join us next week for... Our discussion on unthinkable. But until then, I have been Harley Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis.